Hello, welcome back to True Crime Guys Podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. You guys ready to jump back on the freeway uh, and continue the freeway serial killer series? Right. <laughs> we just continue it when we find people. You know, that's just how yeah. it is. Honestly, um, it's like it's almost like we just took an off-ramp in the past and uh, now we're getting back on. That's all that's it right. is. That's right. That's all it keep is. We uh, We keep finding ones that we had missed before. We thought that right. we were done with the freeway killer series like three times already. Well, listen, if you, and, if you uh, stay on the freeway all the time, you're going to miss so much stuff. You don't, you don't know anything right. to stay on the freeway. So you, you got to get off. Back. Yeah, you got to get off and meander in towns a little bit here and there across the country, across the world. Then jump back on the, the western United States freeways. <laughs> yep. Tyler was, this guy was fucking brutal, man. Like, absolutely crazy. That's another reason I'm, I'm surprised that he's not more well-known. And also, he worked in the Midwest, which is, you know, all of our other uh, freeway killers. They were all West Coast, California, mm-hmm. for the most part. And so this it's kind of crazy that this guy did fly under the radar the way he did. Well, I guess that explains a little bit more, too. You're right. He didn't really get over into the West Coast. And those yeah. those murders over there, those killers over there are much more publicized. Sure. Let's uh let's let's get the intro going and the, get because this is a long one. We can't we can't afford to screw around too much or we'll be here that's right. until tomorrow. Right. This isn't just the banner 36. We gotta get going. Yeah, yeah. Let's do this. All right. Mama dated all the dudes that couldn't stand his ass When he fight back, they nearly drowned his ass Motherfucker just like the last Mama dated all the dudes that couldn't stand his ass And when he fight back, they nearly drown his ass Motherfucker just like the last uh, uh. No wonder he'd like to stab No wonder he'd like to stab All these feelings that he had He had to push them away God forbid he'd be gay No wonder he'd like to stab No wonder he'd like to stab All these feelings that he had He had to push them away God forbid he'd be gay But you can't excuse a matter, there's no reason for that And now he's caught up in the aftermath A real piece of shit, no doubt about that But a product of his habitat No wonder he'd like to stab No wonder he'd like to stab All these feelings that he had He had to push them away God forbid he'd be gay No wonder he'd like to stab No wonder he'd like to stab All these feelings that he had he had to push them away. God forbid he be gay. No wonder he'd like to stab. No wonder he'd like to stab all these feelings that he had. He had to push them away. God forbid he be gay. No wonder he'd like to stab. No wonder he'd like to stab all these feelings that he had. He had to push them away. God forbid he be gay. No wonder he'd like to stab, no wonder he'd like to stab All these feelings that he had, he had to push them away God forbid he'd be gay But you can't excuse the matter, there's no reason for that And now he's caught up in the aftermath A real piece of shit, no doubt about that But a product of his habitat
ass Mama dated all the dudes that couldn't stand his ass When he fight back, they nearly drowned his ass Motherfucker just like the last For our case this week, as we briefly mentioned, we are going back on the freeway for another highway killer slash interstate killer slash freeway killer. Mm, whatever you want to call him. But he was dubbed the highway killer, right? Yeah. That's like the probably the most popular moniker. Yeah. I mean, it's it was really just a, an effective way to be a serial killer in the 70s and 80s. You had freeway systems systems that you could use to go from jurisdiction to you know county to county different jurisdictions and as we've mentioned so many times on this show back then they just they didn't do, do a whole lot of um inner uh, inner county communicating yeah, they're as not far collaborating as, uh, amongst uh, police forces no. back in the day no. it was it would take a lot of bodies racking up in a similar fashion um, and this is a perfect example of that. Larry had a very clear MO. Right. And it, that was kind of what led the counties to finally realize that they had a killer that was jumping around from town to town, crossing state lines. Exactly. The sad um, part about that is, though, is that the body count had to get so high before they started making these connections. You know, exactly. that's the sad And as you mentioned, it. they were, you know, a lot of times young gay men who were living on a uh, an edgier lifestyle. Right. Um, which, you know... Maybe they weren't getting uh, as much pressure to to find these. You know, I men as an, you know. I thought about it too. You know, the, the relationship that some of these men there in this time probably had with their family and their loved ones um, may mm-hmm. not have been that great. You know, it's probably rare to have a supportive family uh, growing up as a gay man at that time. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. their family probably wasn't close to them anyway. And they go when they disappear. How long is it before they realize they're gone? You know, how long has it been since they communicated with their family? And I just don't. A lot of them. Uh, it, the book would make you believe that a lot of these uh, victims were also, you know, potentially straight men that they just wanted money and they would do sexual favors for men for for money. Um, okay. Okay. As well, but a lot of them, it sounded like they were kind of on the outs with their family. That's like what I'm saying. So no, who's going to put living the... kind of a drifter lifestyle? Right. Maybe maybe you know addicted to drugs and whatnot. Right. And in that case, you're not going to have anybody putting the pressure on the police. You're not going to yeah. have any Johnny Gosh's moms out here. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That it just it wasn't it wasn't that atmosphere, and I think that's why so many. Sometimes cases- it would take like uh, the the son not calling on Christmas morning, you know, to for the right. the family to probably realize, finally realize like he always came he always came back on Christmas at the very minimum. So now we know something is not right. Exactly. And this you know way before a time of cell phones and GPS locations and you know check ins mm-hmm. on Facebook and restaurants and whatnot. Like you can't can't track people like you could, like you can now. Yep. So the case, uh, the book that I used for this case uh, is called Freed to Kill, The True Story of Serial Murderer Larry Eiler and the Shocking Travesty of of Justice that Enabled Him to Kill Again. And that title gives away a little bit of this case too, that that this case is another example of close calls where the person should have been locked away. Mm -hmm. And because of, you know, loopholes and just kind of, things that are wrong with our justice system. Right. He was uh, able to walk free, given way too uh, small of a bail, and and able to walk free and, and would actually assault and kill more people after being, at, while awaiting trial for, you know, murders. Right. So. Mm. Some of the most disheartening stuff, man, when stuff just gets delayed. 
Like we can we can we not mm-hmm. detain this guy for a little bit? But it, it also has to be noted this guy had some pretty uh, pretty high up relationships, which we'll get into. Some of the people that he was involved with and that he ran with on a regular basis were a little bit a little better off than him, a little more established, um, had a little more clout in the community, I think, mm-hmm. and I think that helped him a lot. You know, having having these certain people like the man he lived with. Yes, yes. I didn't want to allude yeah. to too much, but I think having these people in his life uh, really helped his status overall and helped his believability. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, I, never, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, that might give him some leeway. Oh yeah. As far as it's all. I mean, life is like, a oh, big if this part. This guy of vouches you know. for him, then. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. Let's start from the beginning with Larry William Eiler, aka the Highway Killer who was born on December 21st, 1952 in uh, Crawfordsville, Indiana, and shares a birthday with Kiefer Sutherland and Samuel L. Jackson. God dang, two greats. Say what again, motherfucker? Say what again? (laughs) Yeah, Samuel L. Jackson, man. Legend. Absolutely. I feel like we've had him before. We've talked about Samuel L. Jackson before. I know I've I've done the impressions before for a reason. Yeah, well, we talk about a lot of Quentin Tarantino, though, as well. That's true. He could have came up quite a bit in some Quentin Tarantino conversation. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, born in 1952 in Indiana, his parents were George Howard Eiler and Shirley Phyllis Kennedy, uh, and Larry would be the youngest of four children. He did not have a great upbringing, as you might guess. His no father was an alcoholic who physically and emotionally abused his wife and children, and Larry, almost thankfully, didn't really get a chance to know him too well because they separated when Larry was two. And he would never see his father again after that. And this caused his mom to have to work multiple jobs, including two waitressing jobs. I think she worked for a fa- at a factory. Right. Um, and at a bar on the weekends to support her four kids. So mm. not, uh, not much in the way of guidance in the household early on. And then he would end up having just being bounced around from place to place and not a lot of stability right, right. as a child. Um, the kids were often left with babysitters, foster families, or left with older siblings to take care of them. Larry would go to St. Joseph's School in Lebanon, uh, Indiana. I think it's uh, Lebanon, was, Indiana, I think. Lebanon, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, it was said that he was tall for his age. He was always kind of a um, strapping lad there. Yeah. He was known as an adult to, they said actively bodybuild. I don't know. I think he just kind of maybe did some bicep curls and shit he was fit for the age you know what i'm saying people weren't yeah. that big into into weightlifting then and there wasn't all these instagram pages you didn't see what a real ripped person looked like on the daily basis <laughs> so someone right. who's somewhat muscular he kind of had a he had a i hate to mention him but he kind of had a pans ram vibe you know he, he yeah. kind of did like big stocky uh just the brute wanted to be mm-hmm. you know the most masculine dude in the room you know part he, of that was his him not not wanting uh the outside world to know that he was gay. Right. Yeah. That was a big part of the story of Larry Eiler was his uh, shame that he felt for being gay. Yes. He and, hated that about uh, himself. I think he, he put out a very masculine uh, outer persona to kind of hide that. Right. Um, as we mentioned, he was tall for his age. He played several sports in school and he was often bullied for being poor and for his parents being divorced. <laughs> That's um, Catholic school for you. Even though he was larger than the other kids, it still didn't stop them from picking on him for that stuff. Right. Um, his older sister, he had a very other. close. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what a stupid thing to pick I know. on someone for. It's, like I said, I, man, it's just, I guess that's just Catholic school, man. It was so taboo. So taboo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Brutal. Um, so he had an older sister named Teresa who would confront the bullies. They He had a very close relationship with his mother and his sister um, throughout his life. And his his sister would play you know a role in defending him in school early on. Hmm. Um, his teachers would describe him as likable, um, quiet with very few friends. Um, and his mother remarried in 1957, lasting one year before divorcing. In 1960, she married again. This one lasted for four years before divorcing, and she would marry for a fourth time in 1972. His uh, Larry's father and his first two stepfathers were all heavy drinkers, so his mother had a type here. I was about to say. Somebody that I was about to say. She, she just, must not have valued herself highly enough to be with a bunch of douchebags like this. Right. She just kept replacing his father with the same thing. It's mm-hmm. the same type of guy. It's like, no wonder this isn't working. Which meant that Larry and his siblings were physically and emotionally abused by these other men as well. One of the stepfathers that he would um, be under would frequently, allegedly hold his head under scolding water to discipline him. Jesus. That's about one of the worst things I've heard. That's pretty bad. <laughs> from, yeah. I mean, is, yeah. He, is he, it's like, is it to the point where he's like waterboarding him in, in like hot water? Or is he just like running it over his head? I don't, I don't, either way, it's, it's strange and just sadistic. It is absolutely sadistic. Mm-hmm. And, and imagine like, this isn't even your real father. This is some guy that maybe your, your mom's been with for a month or something. Right. And he's doing that to you. Who, has, who might probably, as well be a stranger. And that's terrifying because he has no love for you. Probably. He is no known. Yeah. He could kill you and not care, you know, right. not care any less. The only thing that's probably stopping him from doing that is he doesn't want to go to prison. Exactly. Exactly. So when Larry was 10, he increasingly became stubborn and was behaving very erratically. Gee, I wonder why, when you think about his home life. Um, and this caused his mother to place him in a home for unruly boys. He found this experience to be emotionally uh, taxing, and within weeks he had tearfully persuaded his mother to allow him to return home, um, promising to improve his behavior. So wanting some stability back. Uh, his mother being the only kind of stable thing in his life at this point, and his sister. Yeah, he's... Um, he's and after returning... I was going to say, God, he seemed he seemed to never have any negative relationships with women. They were always just kind of middle of the road. And, I, and that kind of... That, that kind that's of, very true. Yeah, that kind of adds up, right? It seems like the women in his life were the role models. They were the ones that stuck up for him. Yeah. They were the ones that showed him love. So, yeah, it makes sense. He didn't have it. He didn't even have a good male role model at all. And he had so many chances. No. <laughs> None of these guys could fit the bill. That's right. sad. So after returning home, he underwent a, phys- a physiological uh, evaluation at a, gui- a child guidance clinic. These tests revealed that Eiler uh, had average intelligence. He was suffering from severe insecurity and had an extreme fear of separation and being abandoned, which wow. once again makes a lot of sense. Yep. This is almost like a, you know, a dog you see at a, a boarding facility or a, at a... A shelter, and it's like they've been passed around to di- five different homes. Right. You know, it seems like it almost has that type of vibe. Anytime they're alone or in a kennel, they're just whining the entire yeah, time. Yeah, severe separation anxiety. Yeah. yeah, they want to be back with somebody. Mm-hmm. That's sad. So concluding that these fears came from his home life, staff recommended that Larry Eiler be placed in a, Catholic's boy, a Catholic boy's home in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, where he would remain for six months before he returned to the care of his mother. So once again, just being bounced around from place to place. Um, and I'm sure there's some strong, some strong beliefs uh, instilled in him against, against gay, uh, gay people at that point too, of going to Catholic school yeah. in this time period. Ironically. This would have oh, been right. what, like the 60s? 
I mean, so. just wow. Yeah, that's that's it's like everything. It's just adding. They're like, maybe this will help. Everything like, kind of no. adds up what, to this uh, one. What you, it all kind of makes sense to what what you see him become as an adult. Like you know, like a man tri- filled with shame. Yeah. Uh, separation anxiety. It's like every you know. time he had a fire, they tried to extinguish it with alcohol. It's like, what are you doing? Right. Stop. Nah. <laughs> You're yeah. just making it worse. You're just making it yep. worse. So Larry discovered he was gay when he reached puberty, um, and he was apparently open about it with his family, although he had a deep-seated self-hate about his sexual orientation and obviously tried to keep this a secret to the outside world. Right. Even going as far um, as dating girls, right? Yes. Yes. I uh, have a family member who did this exact thing. Was, really? I was very close to him, and I growing up, um, he dated several women, even though he knew damn well he was gay, and it was all just, you know, covering up. Yeah. It's sad that they feel like they have to do that, you know, to that extent. Yeah, thankfully he came out, and um, obviously our whole family was very accepting. And now he's in a long, he's been in a long-term relationship with a man, and he's very happy. So. Right on. See, and all worked out. Eiler may have turned out yeah. a little different if he had the same kind of support. Right, but we're talking about a different time too, much different yeah. time. So as you uh, mentioned, Larry would date several girls in high school, but uh, none were physical relationships. So yeah, that makes sense. More of just uh, to be seen with them, right? You know, right. just an image it's a facade. thing. Facade. Yeah, he was somewhat religious since childhood, and told a few close friends that he found it hard to accept being gay. Mm. Uh, yeah, I makes sense once again the time period and being in the Midwest. It's got to be one of the worst times and places to be gay. Oh yeah. It's it's tough to hate yourself for who you are, like at such a core level. It's such an important part of what makes you up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like regardless of of what your orientation is, like your your sexual experiences, like they make up a huge part of who you are. Your confidence, your demeanor. You know what I mean? Your character, yeah. and to hate who you are at that at that level, that's just a terrible way. It's a terrible way to start life in these formative years. Hmm. So he would end up flunking out of school due to laziness, um, not because he wasn't smart enough. He just didn't, you know, didn't care. Right. And uh, he would later receive his GED, though. So shortly after leaving school, he started working as a private security guard in the Marion County General Hospital, uh, where he would work there for six months before losing his position, and then he went to work at a shoe store. I wonder how he lost his position. Because, you know, in so many, so many serial killer stories and their backstories, we find that they wanted positions of power. They all, they, like, some of them wanted to be police officers. And if they couldn't be police yes, officers, yeah. they would be security guards, you know, or something, some, something where they have yeah. some sort of power. BTK comes to mind, yes. you know, with his code enforcement job. Right. Going out and, like, giving people trouble because their grass was half an inch too long or whatever. Exactly. I wonder if he kind of pushed the boundaries a little too much as a, as a security yeah. guard. Maybe tried to overstep his authority, and that's what happened mm-hmm. here. Because six months? I mean, damn, how do you fuck that up in six months? But I don't know. That's interesting. But then he goes to work at a shoe store. Hmm. <laughs> Big change. Yeah, all career. I can think of is uh, married with children. <laughs> when I think of a man working at a shoe store. Yes, Al Bundy. Oh, my God. He's <laughs> <Yeah>. all <laughs> pissed off. Oh, sure. Yeah. Let me go get you another size. I got nothing else to do. Right. <laughs> he was so fucking insulting. He's always like <laughs> insulting some woman putting on shoes. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah, that show probably wouldn't fly very well today. Hell no. Oh, my God. <laughs> he was so oh. misogynistic. Oh, God. He was the worst. 
And worst. he was also like making fun of larger ladies as well. Oh, yeah. And oh. their shoes wouldn't fit and all that. He was a straight asshole. But I mean, if you look back, yeah. I mean, look at his life. He hated himself. All that stuff was projection, right. you know? And that's, yeah. we know that now. It's so obvious, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd never fly today. <laughs> so while working at the, uh, the shoe store, Larry began familiarizing himself with Indianapolis's gay community, frequently visiting gay bars and engaging in casual sex with men. Several of these men noted that Larry would avert his eyes from his partner during intercourse while shouting profanities such as bitch and whore, leading many to believe that Eiler was fantasizing um, his partner was female. So once again, Hmm. shameful in his actions, even while in the company of another gay man in privacy, still shame showing through. And he would show anger towards the partner. It was his own, you know, reflection on himself, his own hatred he would take out on them a lot of times. Absolutely. Um, by the early uh, 1970s, Larry was very well known in Indianapolis's gay community, especially by those who had a leather fetish. So this is another calling card of Larry's. He was very into the leather scene. Mm-hmm. Um, acquaintances within this community described him as good-looking and laid-back, an avid bodybuilder who was close to his mother and sister. Um, others that had engaged in sexual activity with him described him as having a sadistic streak and a violent temper, which would only surface during sexual encounters. Um, often involving Larry extensively bludgeoning and inflicting light knife, uh, light knife wounds upon unwilling partners, particularly to their torsos. Yes. Which reminded me of Dayton Rogers, yes. a case that we did recently. Yes. This guy has a lot of similarities to Dayton Rogers, except obviously Dayton was a straight version of him, but yes. very similar, um, just flip of a switch when it came to the sexual encounters, they would just, uh, just get sadistic right suddenly yeah uh, flip of a switch jekyll and hyde almost it's just so crazy both of them uh preferred knives too yes yes they, it was more personal you know mm-hmm. in, in larry's instance it almost was like he used the knife as like like his penis almost like it was like a uh, mm. that it almost seemed like that's what got him off was like penetrating the victim in the stomach with the knife over and over again repeatedly oh very bizarre yes it is I didn't think about it that way, but yeah, that makes that makes sense. Because some of these men, he didn't even uh, rape, right? I, I believe, yeah, I believe so. There are there were some victims that had no sign of sexual assault. I mean, he just he just wanted to stab them. So yeah, I guess in that sense, there had to have been some sort of sexual drive there, mm-hmm. you know. And like you said, you know, he sees himself in these men as well. And there was one, I mean, this is gross, but there was there was a, a victim that allegedly he had stabbed multiple times in the stomach and then ejaculated into the, the wounds, which is just... Jesus. Like, what the fuck? It may be one of the most fucked up things we've ever said on this show, man. <laughs> I know, no man. No doubt. I, we're on Patreon and I still felt the need to warn you. It's like, this is pretty gross. Yeah, but, uh, that is fucked up. That's I heard that in the book, so... Wow, that's why you get books, people. That, I got those extra facts. I mean, you don't know that Have you don't want with that them. image in your brain. <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, you don't know. They're facts you don't want until you already know them, but, you know, yeah. they're facts nonetheless. Wow. Yeah. So Larry would, uh, at the, around this time in the 70s, work as a house painter as well. He found he was fond of wearing uh, Marine Corps T-shirts, even though he had never been in the military. Um, and this was his nighttime persona. Police, hmm. they would later, uh, there would later be a task force gener- created when all these bodies start piling up, and they would they would get Larry Eiler in their sights because of talking to people in the gay bar scene and whatnot. Right. Um, and one thing that would kind of lead them to believe this might be their guy was his 
his double life, his two personas that he had. He had a very professional um, persona during the day, and then he would he would kind of flip on the switch and become this military looking man or like this very imposing figure right. at night when he would go out to these gay bars. Hmm. Um, he liked to almost look intimidating when he would go out, but he didn't have that during the day. During the day, he was very unassuming, kind of like a not not he tra- he didn't try to be have that intimidating vibe at all. Right, right. Normally, well, you know what else though? Those Marine Corps T shirts they fit great too. You know, yeah, they they very form fitting. I was so uh, like my uh, really accentuate the biceps. They do. They they fit good because they're supposed to be. You know, they're supposed to be for like training and they work out and that shit and everything. Like and they're breathable cotton. Bro, I used to go and get mm-hmm. like just the blank ones from like the Army Navy store because like you could, no yeah, you can it's just a good color too. Yeah, you can wear any like any jeans or tan yeah, pants or any you kind just of get thing like just the blank ones because I just wanted that hundred percent cotton. You know what I mean? That like that nice fitting yeah. shirt and them things. Them things are nice, bro. And you, if you work out too and you're trying to accentuate yourself, psh. yeah, and pair that up with your leather pants oh, and you're ready to go, man. God damn, <laughs> slaying at the gay clubs, bro. Any club, probably. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> so around this time he was living in a condo in Terre Haute Indiana with 38 year old library science professor named Robert David Little and this is what you alluded to like him having somewhat kind of powerful friends mm-hmm. a science professor um, he's living with at this time right um, he had met first met Robert in 1974 while studying at Indiana State University and the relationship between the two men was platonic, uh, with Eiler seeing Little as something of a father figure. But they were both gay men, and Larry would uh, often help uh, Robert. Get, uh, he was kind of his wingman. Yeah. The two regularly socialized within Indianapolis's gay community, although Little, who was socially awkward, quiet, and unattractive, struggled to find form relationships or find sexual partners during these outings. So Larry, being a, a good buddy, would frequently bring home young men to Little's house to have sex with the two of them. Yeah, he they were helping each other out. Yep. I mean, it almost seemed like Little was financing Eiler's life while Eiler is mm-hmm. providing him with his sex life. Pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. He he had a few of these deals work out. It's almost like Larry had uh, high standards when it come came to like he sounded like he kind of meticulously maintained his vehicle and also he liked to have a nice home to go to yeah. but he didn't necessarily have the means to do so so he would find almost like sugar daddies I was about to, to say with. he's a sugar baby Larry Larry's a sugar yeah. baby at this time <laughs> mhm yeah cuz he he would he he liked having that uh persona or like that uh-huh he liked having a, like a really nice house to take people back to yeah oh yeah for sure that makes sense that makes sense he he had to keep up that persona, you know what I mean? Like there in the day, you talked about how professional he was, you know, almost. Yeah. I mean, like so many killers that had high standings in society, lawyers mm-hmm. and business owners and everything else. You know, they like while family and friends allegedly had no idea that he struggled every day uh, accepting being gay. You know, right? He, he was outwardly and openly gay around his his friends and family, but like he still had a major problem with being seen as gay out in public, which. It wasn't the safest time to be known as gay either, so I almost don't blame him for that. Right, right. And he could have, like, if he's if he's an entrepreneur, if he's working for himself, he's painting houses or whatnot. That some people, a lot of people would be uncomfortable with that. If he made that more known, if he was more flamboyant yeah. and whatnot, more people would. I think he would lose business. You know, if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm being honest, if we're being honest, 1978, yeah, I think he'd lose business. Yep. Set. Yeah, it was just easier, I think, to to yeah. just have an outwardly uh, straight persona. Right. You, you know, 
you're not going to swim against the the current as much. Not to mention his heavy heavy Catholic background. That shit weighs mm-hmm. on your conscience, man. You know when yep. when it's drilled into your head. I mean, this guy went to multiple Catholic boys' schools. I mean, he's you know that shit's deep in there. It's deep rooted that hatred. Yeah. So let's get into uh, kind of an infamous close call here for Larry that should have gotten him locked up for a long time of extremely brutal, violent crime, um, an attempted murder on a, a young victim, and he gets away almost scot-free. This almost reminded me of Dahmer mm-hmm. with the guy that, that got it, that broke free from his apartment. The police basically brought him back. <laughs> here you go. You know, you remember that one? <laughs> yeah. Here you go. We got him. Don't worry. Just a lover's quarrel type uh, of thing. Yeah. Oh, God. So on August 3rd, 1978, Larry Eiler picked up a 19-year-old hitchhiker named Craig Long on 7th Street. Not long after Long got in the truck, Eiler started propositioning him, resulting in Long attempting to get out of the truck. Now, uh, Craig Long was not gay, and he wasn't really into the whole... He just was trying to get a ride. Right, he was not trying to have sex with a man or anything like that. Right. Um, in response to him trying to get out of the truck, uh, Larry pressed a knife against Long's chest and said, I don't have any money. Eiler then drove towards a rural field saying, it's not your money I want. I'm not after your money. Um, oh, so Craig was the one that said, I don't have any money when Larry put the knife to his chest. Right, right. Um, thinking maybe he was just going to rob him, but no, it was not what it was about, clearly. Larry then ordered Long to get undressed and then handcuffed him, bound his ankles, and ordered him to climb into the back of the pickup. When Long attempted to run from the truck uh, as Eiler undressed, Eiler chased after him. This is an awkward scene because I picture Larry's like, you know, almost pants around his ankle. He's he's getting undressed while uh, Craig is obviously bound and he's like hopping away. This Um, this sounds like something off Breaking Bad. Right. Just like a weird scene. Like maybe Larry's chasing him in a button up in his underwear. You know, mm-hmm. he's like running around the truck. Like this is this is. It's almost comical, except it's obviously horrific. Right. So it's, exactly. I'm just saying it's 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 yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy. It's an awkward than a movie. scene for sure. Yes. Yeah. So when Long attempted to run from the truck as Eiler undressed, Eiler chased after him as Long yelled, "You queer!" And this enraged uh, Larry Ooh. even more. And in response, Larry stabbed Craig once in the chest, penetrating his lung. He collapsed to the ground, pretending to be dead. So he made a decision in that moment that he, he was going to die if he tried to fight and he was probably going to die either way, but his only chance was to pretend to be dead. Yes. That maybe this guy got off on the fight of things and he didn't want to stab him in the first place. He only did because Craig had run. Right. Um, and it actually worked. Um, he, Larry basically walked away after he pretended to be dead on the ground. Um, Craig would then stumble to a house nearby where the homeowners called paramedics. He collapsed on these people's front door. Well, see, they didn't open the door when he was pounding on it, but he collapsed there and they called the paramedics. Right. Well, it makes sense that Larry went away. If he was that close where he could walk to a house with a, pene- with a uh, penetrated yeah. lung, that means they were really close to, to a neighborhood or something, right? Mm-hmm. A, a town. Mm-hmm. So I think after this whole scene and the whole you queer and, you know, Eilers half undressed, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think he just wants to get out of there as quick as possible. Yeah. So not long after the paramedics arrived, Larry Eiler went to the house as Long was receiving medical treatment and gave the handcuff key to a sheriff's deputy. This is a bold move. Yeah, man. it is. Like, he could have probably just driven away, and the police most likely don't ever catch him from this. I don't understand what what his thinking was here. Well, I don't know. Um, I mean, because this is a very good—he got a very good witness now with— some yeah. damn good evidence. I mean, he has a stab wound in his chest. I, I, you're going to kind of tend to believe this guy. 
Yeah, this may be where he learned to start going further away from home to do commit crimes like this. Mm -hmm. That may have been why he stuck around. He's like, I'm going to get caught because people around here, when they hear the description, they're going to know it's me based off my truck, my look, all that. Right, yeah. Whereas if he goes across state lines to other states, the description isn't going to go as far. I mean, especially in the gay community, they know him. Like, he was super popular Mm -hmm. in that scene, like we talked about earlier. People knew him. Yeah. Yeah, so... uh, so yeah, he he shows up. He gives the key to the uh, to the sheriff's deputy, claiming that he had accidentally stabbed the man. Yeah, this will work. Perfect. Yeah, man, that's that's believable, yeah. right? Um, he was arrested and placed in custody. And a search of his truck recovered some damning evidence. They recovered Uh-oh. a hunting knife, a, a metal tipped whip. Who doesn't have one? A butcher knife, ah. another set of handcuffs, okay. tear gas, and a sword. Okay, well, Tip, a sword. You know, standard. It's like a medical kit, you know, or like, you know, your tire changing kit. Everybody right. needs to have a sword, handcuffs, an a emergency knife, kit in your car. Tear gas. Obviously, this is all just standard stuff right. to keep in your vehicle. Preferably samurai sword, you know? Yes. I think. <laughs> but seriously, who has a sword? I mean, who's got a sword? Like, I wonder what kind of sword it was. You know, was it like one of those old pirate swords? Or was it a samurai? Was it like a Civil War sword? I don't know why it matters. Um, I'm just curious. It, it kind of well, it it does because it tells you the type of like is he a, the type of nerd that he is, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah, true, true, true. But like also, it, I bet it was a sword that was like an old school type Civil War or something sword like that, a sword that you would stab with or like a bayonet type uh, mm-hmm. sword. I bet you that's what he kind was of sword. a stabber. Yes, not so much like a slasher. That's why I don't think it was a samurai. Not that you can't stab yeah. somebody with a samurai sword, but you know you just don't think about it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So Larry would be charged with aggravated battery, and he agreed to plead guilty. A judge set his bond at ten thousand dollars, and his friends raised the ten thousand to get him released on August twenty third, nineteen seventy eight. His friends. Who are these people? In quotes. His. Friends. Well, he's got that guy he lives with. Yeah, who's that's a, who I a think professor. It is. I think that's just he's him. wealthy. I think it's just him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, he obviously was had, still had a really good relationship with his mom and his sister. And oh, he yeah, always had a, a great support system, which helped him to just continue to commit these heinous crimes on people. Yeah, which is weird. Because they saw the best in Larry's, you know, they didn't see that dark side of him. Exactly. And this part's even worse, man. So it's bad enough that he gets out on on bail right away for this horrific crime where this he this kid probably could have died or should have died. Um in which case, Larry would have been locked away forever, you'd like to think. But instead, he's out right away on bail. And then Larry's attorney offers... He also had great attorneys throughout this whole situation. Oh, yeah. Too. Like, he managed to keep getting great attorneys. He had some and better calls. So on, <laughs> yeah. On this instance, uh, Eiler's attorney offered Craig Long a check from Robert Little for $2,500. In return, he agreed not to press charges. After Long accepted the check, Eiler changed his plea to not guilty. So... I mean, Robert Little, I mean, uh, Craig Long, a guy, you know, a young guy that is hitchhiking, obviously has no money. Right. $2,500 in the 70s, yeah. in the late 70s, is that's a good chunk of change. What is that, like 10000 now, probably? Him. Yeah. I mean, most, yeah, that's probably, yeah, equivalent of close to 10K. That's what I'm thinking. I'm not looking it up. For right someone now, who's but... doesn't have a job and is hitchhiking, no vehicle, that's that's a big chunk of change. Hell yeah. Hell, that's, that, could, that could change your life. You can live off that for months. 1978. Yeah. Something that clearly should never be allowed. <laughs> the, oh, I know, the right? Defense attorney to to, to <laughs> approach the victim and offer them a check for their silence. Yeah, just while while the culprit is just out on bond. It's not like mm-hmm. we had a trial yet. It's not like he's been acquitted or anything. Right. Mm. 
And this conf- this basically confirms our suspicion that the uh, science professor, Robert Little, was the one who had came up with the 10K because he also came up with the 2,500 to offer to this victim as mm-hmm. well. Yep. So that's nice. There you go. It's nice to have that bank, man. How else is he going to get young, you know, young, good-looking dudes from the, the gay bar home if Larry's not there to bring them home you to him? You got it, bro. He's not, he's, not, he's not paying for nothing. He's getting a service. Right. <laughs> he's getting a service. He probably had a deal in place with, with Larry. He's like, I get three men this week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you better get your ass to the club right now. Yep. Yep. You can bet. Up to Annie. Yeah. <clears throat> so Larry would be acquitted of the crime on November 13th, being fined $43 in court costs. Wow. That'll really break and you. that was that. That was that for picking up a hitchhiker and stabbing him in the chest, collapsing a lung, leaving him for dead out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, yeah, gets out. That's 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 unbelievable, unbelievable. And would go on to kill you know somewhere around twenty one other men, right? Twenty two men after that, and assault many others. Forty three dollars. Wow. So in August of 1981, Larry began a long-term relationship with a 20-year-old married man named John Dobrov. Dob- I'm going to struggle with this one. Dobrovolos. Br- hmm. Go ahead. D- <laughs> Dobrovolsky. I'm just kidding. Uh, Dobrovolsky. 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 Yeah. Dobrovolsky. Dobrovolsky. Nailed it. There it is. Dobrovolsky's lived with his wife, two children, and three foster children in Chicago, Illinois. So he gets another nice home to live in. And he's got sort of an agreement here. Um, uh, so John Dobrovolsky's wife, Sally, was tolerant of her husband's sexual... She knew he was gay when right. she got with him, but she wanted to be with an attractive man. And she was fine with kind of a platonic live-in relationship where there was no sex involved. Right. And once again, kind of an image thing. Um, and the fact that her husband's lover often stayed with them during the week, paying a third of the rent, um, she was she was kind of okay with that as well. Well... They were cordial. Sally and uh, Larry were, you know, cordial, basically like roommates. Um, meanwhile, both Eiler and Dobrovoskis had a fondness of masochism, and their sexual activity often included Larry binding his partner to devices before beating and lashing him as he yelled curses at uh, John before the two engaged in penetrative sex. So Yeah, but they were both, they were more like equally matched. I feel like John was also a big guy. He was kind of a, a masculine type guy as well. He was right. basically the dominant over Larry, right? Like you get that vibe because he on on several occasions he would hit Larry and Larry would would never strike him back. Huh? Maybe Larry they liked a, that. Kind of a weird dichotomy. Yeah. Hmm. That is weird because usually, yeah, usually Larry is the dominant one. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times Larry was attacking men who were uh, denying his advances. So that kind of yes. <laughs> and he had uh, persuasive tools like such as knives and such and handcuffs yeah yeah so although larry mostly worked as a house painter in illinois during the week he also worked as a liquor store clerk in greencastle indiana on saturdays during this time he regularly traveled between the two states living rent-free at robert little's Terre Haute condo condo in the weekends and robert little did not keep quiet about his severe dislike of dobrovsky's um, to Eiler and resented the fact that he was in a wrong. So his two, well, of course, the man that he used to live with, and he would still stop in and and stay in Robert's condo. Yeah. Um, well, of course, so he's he had kind of two places he could live. Of course, he's not going to like Larry's lover. I mean, because he's taking him away from the time he could be spending at the gay bars, getting him partners. Yep. You know what I mean? Like Larry yep. is getting his his needs met somewhere else. Like 
So yeah. you can understand. And I'm sure little Robert Little's thinking, dude, I just dropped twelve thousand and five hundred dollars on yeah. your ass to, get, to keep you out of prison, right? And, and now you run off and you're living with some other dude, right? And then you're staying at my house when you need it and yep. doing just nothing, using him. Yeah, it's time. no wonder this relationship got bitter. <laughs> yep. So let's get to the murders oh, that, that uh, are the reason we're talking about this, this is scumbag. A chunk of it. Between 1982 and 1984, Larry Eiler is known to have committed at least 21 murders and one attempted murder. All of his murders involved restraining his victims. Several victims were subjected to different levels of sadomasochism before he stabbed and or slashed them to death. The majority of the wounds being inflicted to the victim's chest and abdomen. His victims were typically plied with alcohol and sedatives such as ethlorinval ethlo, developed by Pfizer in the 1950s. Shout out to Pfizer. Wow. Developing more than, uh, more than just vaccines. Uh, vaccines to help us fight viruses. Yeah. They're also helping Larry Eiler be prolific serial killer. Yeah, apparently uh, they're uh, good at sedatives too. Remember that, people. They've been doing sedatives since the 50s. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So in the United States, uh, this F. Clornival, or whatever it says, uh, was sold by Abbott Laboratories under the trade name Placidil, which kind of describes it perfect, Placidil, because it would make you placid. It would make you mm-hmm. hypnotic and, sed- and, and sedative. Um, and he would use this drug. It was typically available in pill form, and I'm guessing he would maybe crush it or... Um, break it apart if it was a capsule and put it into a drink right. or something along those terms. Um, before he would, he, so he would get them under the influence of this Placidil and then restrain, restrain them, um, bound, binding their ankles and um, using handcuffs on them before the murder would occur. Several of his victims were disemboweled after death. He, yeah, he also was fond of dismemberment and. Yeah. A lot of cutting to the body after they were already dead. It, yeah, it almost seemed excessive. It wasn't almost, it was like, you didn't have to do this to dispose of this body. I mean, you're driving these long distances right. and putting them in strange locations anyway. You don't really, it almost, like you said, it seemed he enjoyed this aspect of it. He would often take their hands with him as well. Yeah, and their head. And like put some, them in different locations. As well. Yeah. Now that could be. That may have been for identification mm-hmm. purposes. Mm-hmm. So. That's what I was going to say, but I think it was also a uh, trophy, you know? I mean, at least the hands. Yeah. So Larry was known to have dismembered the bodies of four of his victims. In most cases, his victims were discarded in fields that were close to a major interstate or highway, which is why he is yet another freeway killer um, slash highway killer that we are covering in our series. Frequently, their pants and underwear were left around their knees and ankles, and their shirts and wallets were missing from the crime scene. So once again, I'm sure the, the wallet was just making it, he was just trying to make it harder for them to ID the person, just giving, buying himself more time. Right, right. On October 12th, 1982, Larry Eiler lured 21-year-old Craig Townsend into his truck in Crown Point, Indiana. Although he was drugged, beaten extensively, and later abandoned naked and unconscious in a rural field, causing him to suffer from exposure as well. He would miraculously survive the assault. 11 days later, on October 23, 1982, Larry abducted and murdered 19-year-old Stephen Crockett. His body was found in a cornfield in Kankakee County, uh, and an autopsy would show that he had been beaten and stabbed to death. He'd been stabbed 32 times, including four to his head. He's really... Just a lot of just anger coming out. I was about to say... It's got to be just rage that he he can't stop doing this maybe yeah. like anger at himself and it's you seeing an escalation here as well right these are yeah. getting more and more brutal more sadistic mm-hmm. with each one and they're they're pretty damn close together 
You know, yeah. the first one was October 12th, and here we are on the 23rd. I mean, you have like a William Bonin level of, of uh, brutality to them. Yes, in such frequency. And Bonin had that same hatred for being gay, you know? Yes, yes. And we saw him escalate as well, just like He this. was also a very masculine-seeming man publicly, you know? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of similarities here. If only uh, Larry had a van, then it would be it'd be like freaking twins. Yeah, seriously. One week later, on October thirtieth, nineteen eighty-two, twenty-six-year-old Edgar Underclaffer uh, disappeared from Rantoul, Illinois. His body would be not discovered until March fourth, nineteen eighty-three. So it would take uh, what, like five months, six months, until he would be discovered in a field near Danville, Illinois. Yep. The following month, November of 1982, Larry would murder 25-year-old barman named John Johnson. His body would be found one month later in Lowell, Indiana. So these bodies not being found for minimum of a month, anywhere up to you know six months, a year, and the level of decomposition at that point, and the fact that he would mutilate these bodies so badly and take their wallets, I'm sure made it hard to identify them. It just took longer. And it would take many of these bodies racking up before police would cooperate with each other in different counties and start to basically get together task force to try to capture this this uh, evil serial killer right. that they had uh, living amongst them. On December 19, 1982, 23-year-old Stephen Agin was abducted in Terre Haute, Indiana, and his body was found in the woods close to Indiana State Road 63 on December 28, 1982. An examination of the shed of abandoned farm close to where Egan's body was found showed traces of human flesh on the walls where plaster was damaged, leading investigators to believe that Stephen had been suspended against the wall Here during the torture this is, slash this murder. Is another, another escalation. Now he's Oof. finding abandoned places. Yes. Like you said, he's he's, he's ramping it up, right? He's getting time. more and more brutal. He's spending more, yeah, really. he's spending more time with these victims as well, with the torture. The torture is becoming more of an aspect. Yeah. Whereas before, it seemed like he just wanted to kill and disembowel and or whatnot and get rid of the body, but now it, it just seems he's 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 certainly spending more time with these people. If he's trying to find places that are abandoned, that are private, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I can't think of a much worse way to go, man. Then you're you're right. you're drugged to where you can't even fight it and handcuffed, and you're conscious yeah. and aware of what's going on, and you're being like, for instance, hung from a hook and tortured. Stuff Absolutely nightmares. horrific. Um, Dr. John Pless was the coroner who performed the autopsy on this one and noted the extensive mutilation of Egan's abdomen, chest, and throat, noting that Stephen Egan's killer had showed an immense rage. In his autopsy report, he added a likelihood of there being more than one perpetrator to this murder yeah. due to the fact that there was just so much damage done. Um, and there was speculation later, and there was accusations thrown from Larry to... Um, one of his lovers, about oh, yeah. uh, them possibly being oh, yeah. involved. Get into that. So immediately after finishing Agin's autopsy, Pless did the autopsy on the body of 21-year-old named John Roach, whose body was found close to the Interstate 70 in Putnam County that day. Pless noted the striking similarities in the injuries to Roach and Agin, noting... Uh, multiple stab wounds to the victim's abdomen, right. much like had been on on Agin, upper chest and throat, suggesting an overt rage exhibited by the perpetrator. And to him, this this was likely the same perpetrator yeah, had done both of these. Yeah. So they're starting to the, the police are starting to become more aware that they may have a serial killer in their midst. On December thirtieth, nineteen eighty two, twenty two year old David Block disappeared from Highland Park, an Illinois sur suburb. His body was discovered by a farmer in a field south of Route 70 173 
on May 7th, 1984. Then on January 24th, he's really on a roll here. Um, January 24th, 1983, Larry abducted and killed 16-year-old Irvin Gibson in Lake County. His body was not found until April 15th, 1983. So that would take three months to find him. Um, his body would be found on top of a dog, which had also been stabbed to death. So this son of a bitch is also stabbing dogs. <laughs> it really does. Which probably makes it all the worse. the victim's dog, I would imagine. I'm sure they probably picked them both up together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I doubt he just ran yeah, out and, exactly. you know, just went out and found some random dog a, to do this to. part of the whole ritual or nothing. I think it was just an easy way to get rid of all of the evidence. Mm-hmm. From the creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, One Tree goes deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now, One Tree is launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. They do a deep dive into the most devious scams, manipulative cults, and the coldest of cases. Wondry's Exhibit C lets you view all the evidence through a detective's lens, taking you step-by-step step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. You can join now by following Wondry Exhibit C on Facebook or find them on the web at WondryExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondry and Amazon Music. Exhibit C, it's truly criminal. Then between March and April of 1983, Larry is believed to have killed at least five more victims aging from 17 to 29. On May 9th, 1983, the body of 21-year-old Daniel Scott McNeve was found in a field in Hendricks County. He'd been stabbed 11 times in his neck, five in his back, and 11 in his stomach. The wounds inflicted to McNeve immediately linked his murder to the others that were tentatively linked to the same perpetrator. Uh, on May 18, 1983, Eiler murdered 25-year-old Richard Bruce in Effingham, Illinois. His body was thrown off a bridge into a creek. His body was not discovered until December 5th that year. So another like six-month gap before uh, the victim would be found. Many advocates at Indiana's gay community speculated that the sudden increase in the number of disappearances and murders of young males within Indiana and Illinois might be the work of a single perpetrated, perpetrator. And at this point, the police couldn't deny it anymore. These bodies kept turning up, and they were all killed in the same fashion. They were all, right. not all, but many of them being young gay men um, who kind of lived an edgier lifestyle. And the even the gay bar community is coming out, which they're not typically wanting to involve themselves uh, right. investigations like this, this sort of thing for obvious reasons during this time period, but they felt the need to do so. And the police at this point would create an inner county task force. And I feel like in this case, aside from the, you know, the defense attorneys and, and the, the investigators treatment of Larry, uh, allowing, you know, not, not dotting their I's and crossing their T's as far as they held him. We'll see. They hold him captive for like 12 hours without, uh, um, probable probable cause, and that would that would hurt their chances of keeping him until trial. The bond right. would be reduced, and he'd get set free, um, th- things like that. But as far as the police investigation into finding this serial killer, I feel like they did more than we've seen in other cases. Believe it or not, although th- we've seen so many bodies rack you up feel already, like they were being so many people be killed already, but in this they at least did because they were worried about messing something up. I think I think that's what yeah, they were. I maybe. Think they, or or it could have been. I don't know. 
or they should have been more cautious, to be honest, because they screw up. And like I said, they hold him for 12 hours and this would give, they, yeah. they kept giving yep. ammunition to his Loop defense holes. attorneys to help, yeah. you know, to persuade the yeah. judge to, to help him out. Yeah. So at this point, the police would create an intercounty task force and routinely raided gay bars and bookstores where they would continually uh, film customers on these premises in order to identify the movements of suspects. Larry Eiler would become a main suspect early on in the task force uh, due to his frequenting of the gay bars where men went missing and his prior heinous attack on Craig Long, which they viewed as quite similar to the <laughs> way that these victims had been yeah, killed. Obviously, Craig Long had been actually. stabbed in the chest. Um, it seemed yeah. to line up with the M.O., yeah. And when they started to really observe him, like they, they mentioned some of the things like, you know, his two personas that he had, his nighttime persona and his daytime persona, which they knew to be kind of uh, a calling card for serial killers that having split right. personalities like that or two different personas. So a gay newspaper, uh, The Works, attempted to assist police by creating an that anonymous telephone hotline and published an article speculating both the identity and motive of the murderer whom they speculated was struggling to accept his sexuality. And I guess they would know best, um, you know, yeah, because they, they definitely nailed that. And with help of members from the gay community and the family of one of the murder victims, the editors of this magazine offered a reward of $1,500 for any info leading to the arrest and conviction of the perpetrator. Uh-oh. So the gay community nailed doing it. what they can, doing their best to help uh-huh. um, catch this person who is killing and uh, torturing many of the members of their community. By the spring of 1983, Indiana police had tentatively linked several murders of young men committed in the state to the same perpetrator. Six days after the discovery of McNeve's body, the Indiana State Police held a meeting attended by 35 detectives from each of the four jurisdictions where the victims had been found. And the conclusion of the meeting would be that the same perpetrator had murdered in each jurisdiction and that a unified task force would be formed dedicated to apprehending the suspect. The four separate murder investigations within Indiana were combined into one, and the task force would have two detectives from the state police, two from the Indianapolis police, and two from each county involved in the manhunt. And I'm sure there was quite a pissing match going on between those <laughs> groups. Oh, you know it. We're going to catch up. No, we're right. going to catch up. No, we're... Yeah. Um, the task force named the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team was led by Lieutenant Jerry Campbell of the Indianapolis Police, All information gathered was entered into a database linked to the statewide police system. And on the first day of the the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team's existence, the FBI was contacted, describing the method of the murder and body disposal of the offender they were looking for. And they were looking to get a profile, uh, an FBI profile, um, which are infamously accurate a lot of times. Um, And so they requested the FBI... Give a give them a you know a description of what they viewed this person would be, and um, right this uh, they predicted him. The FBI came back with their profile uh, of this person. They predicted him to be a white male in his late twenties or early thirties who worked in a menial profession and who would present a rough exterior due to his self hatred about sexual attraction to other males. Could they have nailed it more? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they. Freaking nailed it. Yeah, they were like, he probably yeah. loves leather and has a, a mustache and... Uh, right. <laughs> and his name might be Larry. Has a sword. Uh, we're not sure. Yep. So the individual would uh, project a macho image and seek other masculine males' approval and company. In order to feel a sense of belonging, this individual would frequent redneck bars and be something of a night owl, yet live on the edge of panic due to being homosexual, always afraid of being labeled queer by others. 
And the FBI predicted that after completion of a murder, the offender would symbolically erase the act by making a rudimentary effort to cover his victim with leaves or dirt. Uh, They also said that the individual likely had a middle-aged, middle-class, and somewhat more intelligent accomplice in several of his initial homicides. How would they know that? It's crazy, right? It almost sounds like this profile was made after they arrested Larry Eiler, you know? Uh, seriously, after his confessions. Yeah. <laughs> the FBI also just, said that many victims had been athletic in stature, and this profile pr- predicted that the offender uh, was most likely a physically strong individual. It's crazy okay. how much well, they nailed that, this. Yeah, that's not far of a jump, though. Right. If you're, if you're looking at these men that were overpowered, and they were all athletic in yeah. nature. Well, they were so, also drugged, you know. Exactly. It's like Randy exactly. Kraft it's overpowered true. technically how many men, and he was a little, you know, twerp. Uh, but it was because he was That's drugging true. them all. That's true, too. That's true. But I guess uh, not all of them had drugs in their system, probably. There was something to to lead them to believe this. Yeah. Well, yeah, part of it was uh, the fact that the deep welt marks and the wrists of many of the victims suggested they had uh, struggled to resist being bound and handcuffed. So they were not mm-hmm. drugged to the point where they couldn't fight back at least enough to make marks on themselves. Gotcha. So not long after this, investigators in Lexington, Kentucky, contacted the task force reporting a 29-year-old named Jay Reynolds who was discovered stabbed to death in their jurisdiction on March 22, 1983. So Kentucky coming into the mix. Days later, investigators in Chicago reported that the body of 18-year-old Jimmy Roberts had been found with 35 stab wounds to his body in Thorn Creek on May 9, 1983. Both victims were linked to the manhunt for the same perpetrator whom this task force dubbed the Highway Murderer. Then on June 6, 1983, a former lover of Larry Eiler's, Thomas Henderson, called the investigation team's confidential hotline to tell of his sp- suspicions that Larry may be the one, maybe the killer they were looking for, informing them that his former lover had been charged with some sort of stabbing of a young hitchhiker in 1978, possessed a violent temper, and had a fondness for bondage. And this is where they really zone in. They really kind of target in on Larry Eiler. Uh, Henderson, Larry's former lover, told them that Eiler worked at a liquor store in Greencastle on Saturdays and lived in Terre Haute with an older man on the weekends. And they'd had at least one oh. victim from Terre Haute as well. So Right, and now they're adding that stuff up. They're like, oh, man, he's yeah. got the... This guy really fits the, the bill the here. Older, yep, the middle class. Yeah, uh, right. The F- when they look at the FBI profile, they're like, holy shit. Okay. <laughs> I think we got it. Right. Yeah. Um. This man also told investigators that in 1981, uh, Larry had drugged a 14-year-old boy, later leaving the unconscious teenager in woodland in a woodland area close to Greencastle. The boy had not been molested. Investigators believed that Larry had given the boy pills as a way to test how effective the sedatives were. After conducting a background check on Larry, investigators discovered he had been arrested in 78 for that attempted sexual assault of the teenage hitchhiker, which he had stabbed and left for dead, um, mm-hmm. and then returned to the scene to give the cops the... Uh, handcuff key which is bizarre right yep and so they saw that the handcuffing of the youth's wrist and binding of the ankles matched the technique of the highway murderer uh and almost all of these victims had been restrained in the same manner additionally larry was known to travel between indianapolis and chicago often um yeah he was on the highways all the time he had racked up a ton of mileage on a, a fairly new pickup that he had uh, it was such yeah. a calling card of serial killers, isn't it? To just put a ton of mileage on their vehicles. They just are always driving, oh, looking yeah. for opportunities. Hell yeah. And the techniques, man, the techniques that they use, the ones that work, they stick with them. Yeah. Like this is this is a big deal. Yeah. But you just can't can't jump the gun just yet though, you know? Yeah. 
they're trying to build a case here. Yeah. But a lot of this shit is adding up. Not fast enough, but it's adding up. <laughs> I know. So much damage had already been done, <sighs> but I guess better God. late than never. So all this information by Thomas Henderson that had had been brought in was considered sufficient enough to keep a track of uh, Larry Eiler's whereabouts, um, but not place him under full surveillance yet, which kind of blows my mind. It's like, I feel like that was... But maybe they were, we don't know, they were getting flooded with tips, I'm sure, at this point, after they created this task force and, and appealed to the public, um, and there was reward money offered and all that. You know, they're probably just getting flooded with tips, but this one's seeming stronger than the others, enough to place him under at least partial surveillance. And on July 2nd, 1983, the body of, of an unidentified Hispanic man was found in a field two miles from the city of Paxton in Fort County, Illinois. This victim had been deceased since June 27th or 28th, and he had been re repeatedly stabbed in the stomach. On August 31st, a tree trimming crew found the body of another victim in a field near Route 60 in Illinois, 28-year-old Ralph Calise, who had been stabbed 17 times with a large knife, several wounds to his stomach, causing sections of his small intestine to protrude out of his body. Just mm. ghastly, ghastly stabbings brutal. here. That is absolutely brutal. You know, a crazy, crazy quick story. I ran into an older gentleman at the flea market yesterday who like he was buying he was buying this set of golf clubs but he could barely walk and so i was like the parking lot's like right there so i was like hey do you need me to help you carry this to your truck and he was like oh he was super thankful right so we're i'm walking the golf clubs back to his truck for him and while we do that he proceeds to tell me the history of the property that this flea market is on and he said when he was a teenager he was riding down the road and the, there's a ditch right in front of where you turn into the to the parking lot where the flea market is now and he said he stopped and helped to help a man in that ditch because he saw a man laying face down in the ditch. Oh shit! And he pulled over. And when he got out, and the guy, he could hurt, he could hear the guy like grunting, and he was like saying help. He was like was trying to say help, and said. And when he rolled him over, his intestines fell. Out. Holy shit! Yeah, he said. I remember it like it was yesterday. He said every time I walk by this place, I think about it. I'm like, damn, I bet. Did the guy die or? <sighs> He said he called the police, called 911, oh, and then when the police showed out. up, no, they were like, you need to get the hell out of here. This is a crime scene, and right because it was all it was knife wounds and shit. Oh, my gosh. Apparently, that was a super rough area back in the day. Wow. Right? It's crazy, man. And this man had to be, like, probably in his 80s. Wow. So, it's crazy. You never know, man, what people have seen, the kind of shit yeah. have encountered. Yeah. Mm. So, at this point in the story... Uh, a pretty amazing woman steps in, a reporter uh, for WLS-TV in Chicago, um, steps into the fold. Her name was Geralind Kolarik, um, and she had noticed, she'd done her own investigating and noticed similarities between the murder of Ralph Calise and the other two, or at the two, and the two de earlier deaths of young males within Lake County, Indiana. So she's, she's linking crimes in, in two different states um, as just a local reporter for local television. Um, Kolarik was also familiar with uh, other murders of young males committed in Indiana with similar uh, signature knife wounds and speculated the perpetrator of these earlier Indi Indiana crimes had begun to murder and or dispose of victims' bodies in Lake County. She went and talked with Cook County investigators and discovered uh, she discovered that two young male murder victims who had lived in or disappeared from uptown Chicago in 1982 had also been found with multiple stab wounds to their body and their pants and underwear were pulled down around their ankles in Kankakee County, Illinois, and in Lowell, Lowell, Indiana. So she's doing, she's linking all these crimes together. She's like an early day sleuther, basically. And, yeah. and presenting the investigators and the task force with her findings. 
Um, on September 8th, investigators yeah. from all jurisdictions in both states were, uh, where these additional bodies had been discovered met with the senior task force representatives in Crown Point to discuss whether these additional five deaths were also linked to the same perpetrator. And they would all be added to the list of victims compiled by the task force with whom investigators now believe to have been murdered, uh, who this person had murdered up to 17 young males, in their opinion. So she connected another oh five God. victims to this list that they had. Pretty amazing. Yes, it is. She's doing her homework, man. People are noticing that. Yeah. It's nice when you when you have that platform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's good that the it's good that they actually heard her out, you know. Oh yeah. So all five murders would be added to the list compiled by the task force. Um, and then one month later, on October 4th, 1983, two mushroom hunters found a human torso inside of a plastic bag inside in Kenosha County, Wisconsin. The victim would be identified as 18-year-old Eric Hansen. He had last been seen alive on September 27th in, in St. Francis, Wisconsin. And this dude is covering some ground, right? They, just the number of he states that we've is. mentioned already. And also the the frequency. I mean, yes. does he go over a month in between a Hell killing? No, I don't no, think it so. seems like it's at least one a week. Yeah, I mean, I couple think the longest span. stretch he's had... I think the longest stretch he had was maybe a month. I know we had one that was like December 20-something to January 30th mm-hmm. or something. And that was the longest stretch I've seen. Other than that, it's like you said, it's multiple killings a month. Yeah, and they're each one getting I more mean, and more gruesome. On, yes, on this occasion, yes. Hansen's body uh, had been mutilated. His head, arms, and legs had been severed from his body with a hacksaw, and the body had been entirely drained of blood. So when they found this torso, it was completely drained of all the blood. The skull and hands were never found. So they found just a torso. Um, it's amazing oh. that they were able to identify him based off of just a freaking torso. Yeah, it is. That's what I was thinking. But I, I believe mean, there would, the might hand. have been a tattoo or something that had linked him. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, Eleven days later, the decomposed body of an unidentified young man was found buried in a field near Rensselaer, Indiana. This victim was determined to be a Caucasian with shoulder-length reddish-brown hair and aged between 18 and 26 and he, unfortunately, has never been identified. On October 18th, the partially decomposed bodies of four more victims were found alongside an oak tree near an abandoned farmhouse in Lake Village, Indiana. Jesus. So an, a, another dump site with four victims. Four yeah. victims. Oh, my God. Each victim had been dead for several months, and all four had been partially buried with sections of the body of each victim remaining exposed above the ground, suggesting the murderer had made a minimal effort to bury each victim, which... Once again, that, that, was that part FBI of the profile. profile too. Yep. How would they? I mean, I guess other than just finding the bodies, you know, done that way. Right. You think it's just laziness, or he just wants them to be found. Like you said, uh, the FBI profiler speculated that was the shame that he felt. He didn't want to look at it himself, so it wasn't really trying to not have the bodies found. But it was just like he couldn't stand to look at it, so he like brushed some dirt and leaves over them. I don't know. Oh, okay. So after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All four of those victims had been stabbed more than two dozen times with a blade at least eight inches in length, and the pants of each victim was discovered around their ankles. A clear calling card of this same serial killer. Oh, yeah. Two months later, on December 7th, a hunter discovered the partially buried skeleton of 17-year-old Richard Wayne in Hendricks County, Indiana, near the U.S. Route 140. Route 40. Uh, he disappeared while traveling from California to Indiana on March 20th. The body of a second, less decomposed victim was found under the remains of a burned mobile home a few, uh, uh, home a few feet. So, oh my let's talk about his first arrest. 
On September 30, 1983, Larry Eiler was arrested in Lowell, Indiana for a routine traffic violation. He had been driving with a young hitchhiker at the time, and both men were arrested and detained for questioning at Lowell State Police Ooh, Post. That was a close call. Um, Larry was initially detained on charges of soliciting and young male... Uh, of a young man uh, for sexual purposes after sergeant named William Cothran, without Eiler's consent and before telling him he was under arrest, had searched his Ford oh, pickup. No. This is one of those issues yeah, I was talking about. Up. Yep. And inside the Ford pickup, they found two pieces of nylon rope. His vehicle would be impounded. Shortly after 1.30 p.m., two investigators from the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team did a formal interview with Eiler. They informed that he, him that he had become a suspect in the series of murders due to an anonymous phone call from a former acquaintance of his. Larry was willing to discuss any aspect of his life and their suspicions of him committing murder, but refused to talk about his sexuality. And you can see how he, it's hard to talk about the crimes that he committed without talking about his sexuality because right. you know uh, a lot of these people you know he was linked to gay bars and uh, a lot of these victims were gay men and like that was a lot of the motive behind the murder so it's like how can we discuss you being you know these the you know you're linked to these victims without discussing you being gay or discussing your sexuality right. which it's just made it difficult Very. um when questioned about the murders of john roach and daniel mcneve Eiler claimed to have read about both murders in the Indianapolis Star, but denied ever having committed murder. He agreed to let the investigators conduct a forensic examination of his vehicle and also agreed to allow investigators to take a mug shot, take his fingerprints, and to give him a polygraph test at a later day, date. Um, now, the problem is they'd already searched his truck before he gave consent. Um, and the funny thing is that he was willing to give them the consent to search it, so they just they really didn't need to do that. Right. Uh, so all that evidence is thrown out now. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So a search of Eiler's truck recovered a knife, two sections of nylon rope, handcuffs, a hammer, two baseball bats, a mallet, and surgical tape. An inspection of Eiler's shoes and truck revealed the impressions of his boots to be a precise match to plaster casts taken of imprints discovered alongside the body of Ralph Calise. So they had these Oof. boot prints. They were pretty distinct. The pattern on them, they also had wear on, on certain parts of the of the boot. And right. not only did the print Dead match, giveaways. but the, the wear matched as well. It was like a dead Ooh, match, almost like damning. fingerprint level. Right. Um, Didn't he also have some, uh, some, he had like two different types of tires that yes, he was leaving tracks yes, at scenes yes. as well. Yep. So it was just, oh, it's brutal evidence against him. For real. Like the odds of you having two different types of tires and then like that matching the scene as well. Oof. <laughs> That's not good. Damn and it. then the boots too. <laughs> yeah. 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 You were there, bro. Yeah. So the pattern of the vehicle's tire tracks were also deemed similar. Also, blood discovered under the handle of the knife found, uh, blood was found under the handle of his knife. Eiler was known to have regularly commuted between these, uh, the three districts in Indiana and Illinois, where several vi victims' bodies had been found Greencastle, Terre Haute, and Chicago. Also, his lifestyle closely matched the physiological profile of the murderer earlier compiled by the FBI, as we mentioned, spot oh, on. Very closely. Yeah. And upon completion of the forensic examination of Eiler's pickup, Indiana investigators informed him that he was free to leave uh, custody and keep possession of his truck. So, wow. But they did have him in custody for like 12 hours, and I believe there was some issue where they hadn't informed him that he wasn't under arrest and that he could leave if he wanted, and it was like he was under the impression he was being held against his will. And, right. of course, the defense attorney would use this against against them in court. 
Um, so due to concerns that Larry knew he was now a murder suspect may lead him to dispose of potential evidence in the early hours of October 1st, investigators from the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team got a search warrant authorizing the search of the home of Robert Little in Terre Haute, where obviously Larry had spent a lot of time. They were they were trying to recover evidence quickly before he could destroy it. And this search was done at the dawn on October 2nd and revealed more circumstantial evidence such as credit card receipts showing Eiler's presence in the jurisdictions in Illinois and Indiana on the dates identified victims linked to the highway murder had been killed. So he was wow. proven to be in the area at the time of these mm-hmm. murders. Phone bills found at the property showed that Eiler had regularly placed collect calls to Little's house at antisocial hours shortly after identified victims were believed to have been murdered. So he's calling in the middle of the night after these victims had been murdered. One of these calls to Little's home had been from a payphone near the Cook County Hospital on April 8th. This date, Gustavo Herrera was murdered, um, and he was proven to be in the area yet again. Just so much. This is like a mountain of circumstantial evidence here. They don't have a smoking gun. They don't have a DNA link, obviously. This is early in those days. But, man, they have a, a mountain of circumstantial evidence. Absolutely. Um, hospitalization records showed that uh, Larry got treatment for a deep cut on his hand on this date, which he said was caused when he fell from his truck and landed on a glass beer bottle. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Man, that's a bad so luck. Huh? Who hasn't done that? Right. right. Fall out the truck right onto a bottle. Right. Ah, yeah. That old gag. Yeah. Receipts recovered from the, the property that they searched also showed that he had bought handcuffs and a knife the following day. Yikes. Um, Investigators also discovered that Larry and Little had uh, recently spent several weeks on vacation in New York, then returned to Indiana shortly before Kalisa's murder. And coincidentally, oh. none of these murders happened Damn. in that two-week span as well, somehow. Oh, man. That's yeah. weird. Mm-hmm. Nobody died in New York either? <laughs> <laughs> that, I don't know if they went that far, if they, they reached that far. Right. But who knows? New York was yeah, a crazy place that, at that time. I find that hard to believe. Well, I don't know. I guess he could go two weeks without killing somebody. He's probably fiending, though. He he was taking a vacation from his normal life, which included killing, so... Right. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Sometimes you even need a break from killing, you know? That's right. That's right. And you can't do it all the time. Yeah. Um, so all of these revela- uh, revelations led a mom- member of the Indiana Task Force named Kathy Burner to say to her colleagues, quote, if Eiler is not the murderer we are looking for, then he is following the actual killer on a daily basis. <laughs> That's one that's one good way to say it, right? Exactly, that's a middle right? of the road way to say it without getting sued. Yeah. Yeah. If he's not the murderer, he's following him around mm-hmm. everywhere. <laughs> Oddly. Yeah. He likes to watch killings apparently. Yeah. So the tire impressions obtained by Indiana authorities were not suitable for comparison with the impressions from the site of Kalise's murder. Investigators in Illinois received approval from state attorney to take possession of Eiler's truck. So what they had done is they had taken, instead of casts of his tires, they they like drove over the piece of paper or whatever, and it just wasn't good mm-hmm. enough. And so they, they you know got a, approval to obtain the truck and impound it, and that's where they were able to get uh, a better prints and, and just further do him in. Um, right, right. So Eiler's truck would be impounded at Lake County Sheriff's headquarters and he would be accompanied uh, by investigators to Waukegan uh, for further questioning. And, uh, and during this questioning, he would admit his penchant for being the dominant partner in bondage sessions and that his relationship with Dobrolowski's had been a love-hate uh, situation. He stated that Dobrolowski's had frequently argued and that... Uh, they would they would so they would get into spats all the time and they would cut deep with their verbal arguments mm-hmm. and then oftentimes Dobrovsky's would hit him 
Um, and I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, how in that relationship, Larry was seemingly the submissive because he would never hit back. Right. He would basically just leave. If Dabrowski's hit him, he would just leave. Um, however, he was denying anything to do with the murders. He denied that the tire tracks and boot impressions recovered from the Khalees murder scene belonged to him, adding that he had never met the victim. Hmm. Um, they then said, investigators then said to, uh, to Larry, Larry, we know something about you. You would get in a fight with John and then pick someone else and stab them up because you'd be, think it was John. So they're alleging that his anger towards John would lead him to go murder an innocent victim. Man, they just came right out and said um, that to him just like that. Just so <laughs> At this weird. point, like I said, they have so much evidence that I think they almost feel like they could take him to trial regardless. Yeah. Because they have so much damn evidence. Little do they know how good a defense attorney is going to use kind of their mistakes against them. Right, right, right. It's like they really thought John played um, a bigger role at this time because that's really all Larry is alluding to them is this relationship. He's like, okay, yeah. yes, I, I'm gay and I participate in this type of relationship, but this was my partner. This didn't end well. Mm-hmm. We're done. You know, I think that's what he's given yeah. them at this point. That's what it seems like. Right. So on October 4th, uh, Larry Eiler was released from custody and hired a lawyer from Chicago named Kenneth Ditkowski to represent him. Having received information from the Lake County Deputy Chief Investigator that there was insufficient evidence to formally charge his client with murder, Ditkowski filed a civil lawsuit against both the Lake County Sheriff's Police and the Indiana State Police, citing that the harassment of his client and contending that investigators in both states had violated the 14th Amendment and Eiler's civil rights by involving him in the collective investigation with insufficient evidence to formally charge him with murder. Wow. The suit sought $250,000 in damages against 11 named officers in both states. Holy shit. So not only uh, are they not able to arrest him for these murders, but they're actually having a civil lawsuit brought against them. That is insane. The, the balls of these defense yep. attorneys, bro. They know no bounds. Right. Seriously. <laughs> Um, on October 6th, the boot and tire imprints from the murder scene of Ralph Calise were sent to the FBI headquarters in D.C. for further analysis to be compared with all the physical, physical evidence recovered by Indiana investigators in the task force efforts to forensically link Larry Eiler to this particular murder. So if they could get, you know, damning evidence in one murder, then they could at least get him behind bars while they really gather the cases for all the other right. murders. You know, like we see this pretty common thing. It's like sometimes I feel like... Um, they felt like they had the strongest evidence in the Khalees murder. Right, and I feel like sometimes these killers with these that are this prolific and they have this many victims, it's tough for the police force to narrow down where they want to work. It's like, do we follow that one? Do right. we follow that murder? Do we have, you have to pick this? one and, and just kind of follow it, see where it goes. Yeah, but I mean, had, it's, it's almost damn near impossible to prioritize an investigation like this when you still yeah. got bodies popping up from from different times right you, you might find a new body mm-hmm. but maybe he's been dead for six months you know what i mean yep. so it just it, it just felt like they were running in circles i'm sure there was so much to do it was overwhelming and meanwhile yep. the defense attorney's picking them apart at every time they're fucking up because there's mm-hmm. so much to do it's mm-hmm. oh it was a it was a whirlwind of disaster for the police yeah so several days later, the FBI told the investigators that the brute impressions were a precise match, including four distinctive areas of wearing and damage upon the soles. Extensive blood stains determined to be type A positive were also found inside the footwear. Also, the tires on Eiler's truck were from two different manufacturers, and the physical impressions recovered from the murder scene were determined to be from these two separate manufacturers. The tire impressions themselves were a perfect match in terms of grip depth and as well. And you know what else? So, it, it shows that he's had that he has to maintenance and maintenance his truck a lot. If he's got random different types of tires on, that means he's putting a lot. Remember, this is a new truck still. 
right? He hasn't yep. had it that long. I it's know, like, why man. are you already replacing tires? Because you're going all mm -hmm. over the damn place. You're going off the road. Maybe you're pulling off. Maybe you're getting flats. You know, maybe you mm -hmm. you're wearing out one side because you're you ride halfway off the road a lot or whatever. Like there's mm -hmm. th that's just more evidence and more more evidence to the wear that he put on this vehicle and all the places that he was. Yep. Mm. Yeah. So with this this new uh, 100% damning evidence against him with the, the boots and the tires from the FBI themselves, they then got enough. Uh, they had enough evidence to present to the to the DA to be able to get a warrant permitting them to get a sample of Eiler's air and blood, hair and blood for further comparisons with evidence taken from his his right. truck. They would serve the warrant the next day following Dikowski's civil lawsuit. Um, hearing. So the blood sample showed that uh, Larry Eiler's blood type was O positive. So the blood in his boot did not match right. the, his blood type. Huge. So it had to have been someone else's blood. Yeah. And it was a lot of blood in that boot yeah. too. And this this is so. huge, man. We know how he liked to drain the yeah. bodies of blood as well. Where mm -hmm. did all that... There's no way you don't get some of that shit on you. There's no way. Right. So on October 29th, 1983, Larry Eiler was formally charged with Kalisa's murder. His bond was set at $1 million and an initial tri trial date was set for December 19th. He still professed his innocence, adding in anonymous media interviews that the accusation had diminished his reputation among his family and friends, declaring that he had murdered anyone. Real evidence would have, if he had murdered anyone, real evidence would exist. What more evidence do you need? Dude, like there's your so much evidence. Fucking perfect boot prints, perfect tire prints from di two different manufacturers of right. tires. To me, that one that is like is dead on. overwhelming. It's like okay, the odds of that happening. Okay, you didn't kill. You didn't kill that that person there. But why were you there? Because you were there. So why right. were you there? Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, and then uh, the, the, let's not forget the key. So this one is like unbelievable evidence. There was a key. This is a different murder victim. This is Stephen Agin. Uh, but there was a key found underneath the body of Stephen Agin, which would later be determined to fit the door of an office where Larry Eiler had worked in 1982. Oh, get the fuck out. Did you think get of, out. like... <laughs> God damn it. You might as well have left what? your fucking driver's license at the fucking crime scene. <laughs> that is... that. Yeah, that's damning evidence right there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was probably on the same ring as his handcuff key, and it fell off. Dude, you know what? That's that's very good mm -hmm. theory there. That's true. So on November 12th, uh, with the approval of Eiler's mother, Robert Little and John Drabravowski's, a criminal defense attorney named David Shippers was retained to replace Kenneth Ditkowski as Eiler's legal representative. So he steps up his game and gets an even better lawyer. And Shippers would get to work um, and opted to change the defense strategy adopting, adopted by his predecessor and also forbid his client to give any further interviews to the media. And after an extensive evidentiary hearing in December of 1983, a Lake County Circuit judge named William Block uh, will, ruled that although Eiler's initial arrest for the traffic violation had been legally valid, his detainment during which the evidence was recovered by Indiana police and was now presented before him had been obtained without probable cause and that as such, Eiler's detention had been illegal. That 12-hour period that he, they had held him after that traffic yep, stop was, not under arrest was illegal, deemed by this judge. Um, and this is where I talked about his bail being reduced and him being able to walk free. A further hearing to determine whether defense motions to suppress the physical and circumstantial evidence retrie retrieved by investigators between September 30th and November 22nd, and to retract, avoid several warrants that authorized the searches of the seizure of property was scheduled for January 23rd. At the hearing, a police sergeant named John Pavlovic 
admitted that the reason Lowell police had prolonged Eiler's detainment on September 30th was to await the arrival of the task force assembled to investigate the series of murders, and that Eiler had never formally been under arrest in relation to any offense other than the sighting of a male for sexual purposes. So he was there for just a little minor misdemeanor, you know, picking up, um, you know, picking up someone for sex and they held him for 12 hours so that they could get this task force there to interview him. And, you know, they didn't let him know that he was under arrest or anything like that. So it was, it was all illegal what they were doing. Wow. And further testimony pertaining to the Lake County and Chicago officers search of Dobrovowski residence on October 3rd revealed that this search had been done without a search warrant. (laughs) Oh my God. Son of a bitch. Oh, they fucked up. They got too, they got too like, I, I get the, the urgency here. This dude is killing at an unbelievable rate, you know, and that almost helped him because the police were, they were so That's eager. That's what I'm saying. And they saw a guy that fit the mold and they just had to get him, but they weren't doing it properly. Right, dude. They were running around like chickens with their heads cut off, bro. They had so much to do yeah. and all these different jurisdictions were trying to, like you talked about earlier, pissing contest. Who wants to be first? Who wants to catch yep. this guy? Who wants yep. to get the damning evidence? That's another part of it. Yeah. Fuck the warrant. Get in there and get that fucking evidence. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. And that's what happened. I, I really do. I think the pressure yep. put on each other and then also the communities, um, it's just, it caused them to fuck up, man. Dude, this happened in, uh, the same exact shit happened in the Sunday Sam case. Remember, we just yeah, talked a lot about that last week. Car. They mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, saw the, they saw the revolver in his car and they just went in and got yep. it without having a warrant. And that, that almost fucked everything yep. up. Sure did. So on February 1st, Judge Block ruled that although Eiler had signed a Miranda waiver upon being detained, he had been taken into custody for interrogation of charges not related to the crime of murder and was only later detained on charges of soliciting. Um, He ruled that the evidence recovered by Illinois investigators in their comparison of of his boot prints and tire tracks to the plaster cast recovered at the Calise crime scene had been tainted as the search had been prompted by Eiler's initial legal detainment by Indiana investigators had been in a violation of his constitutional yeah, rights. Yeah, but they were still Furthermore, there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I don't get. It's like that's a, I I I oh know, man. God. I know. It's like yes, you have damning evidence, but you didn't. That's public uh, property. Obtain this evidence in the proper manner. But that's public property. That's what I don't get. Like, you don't have to get a search warrant to search a field. I, I don't. Right? Yeah, but the boots, the, but the boots and the tires are his property. Ah, That's the problem. Okay, the comparison was done while he was detained. Mm-hmm. Which okay, 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 mm-hmm. okay. That makes sense. It yeah. makes sense. All right. Furthermore, although Illinois investigators had obtained possession of Eiler's boots from their Indiana counterparts th- through a subpoena, the boots had never been formally seized by Indiana authorities. So that these jurisdictions not properly, you know, communicating with each other and doing things right. It, it, once again, his killing in all these different states is making it tough, yes. um, to say the least. Block further ruled that the facts detailed by the police uh, affidavit to search Robert Little's home were insufficient to obtain a search warrant. With the ex- exception of the tire impressions and hair and blood samples obtained by Eiler, Block ordered all evidence obtained to be suppressed. Eiler's bond was also reduced to $10,000. There we go. And what was it before? A million? Yeah. Yeah, his bond was a million initially, and, you know he, and he dropped it to 10K, which they know he can make yep. because he's already made a 10K bail before, yep. right away. I wonder I wonder if Little had anything to do with that negotiation. I'm sure Little was like, okay, I could do 10 grand again, I guess. <laughs> you know, right. he, he like met with the defense attorney. He's like, if we can get it down to 10 grand, I think we can get him out again. But you got to but you gotta promise me, Larry, that you're not going to go back to the Brofke yeah, again. Yeah, seriously. Or whatever. I want four guys a week now. No, it's good. Right. Yeah, right. We just upped the ante, baby. <laughs> Damn. Yep. 
So as a result of this ruling, Larry Eiler was released from custody on February 6, 1984. His family and Robert Little paid the re- reduced bond fee, and he was free yet again to go and assault more young men. Um, his bond stipu- stipulated that he was unable to leave Illinois, but otherwise he was free until the trial would occur, which, as we all know, can take a long time, oh, yeah. allowing Eiler to assault and kill more innocent young men. Four weeks after his release from custody, Larry Eiler permanently relocated to Chicago, where he lived in an apartment complex in Rogers Park, with Robert Little buying the furniture, paying the weekly rent, and also buying a new set of tires for his pickup. Wow. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. He's like, we, we know he needs those, like, We're right? definitely getting you some new boots and tires, so <laughs> we going shopping. Yeah, there's, new, there's too much heat on those tires you got on yeah, that, Larry. Yeah, seriously. Let's get you a matching set of good years here, pal. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Um, at his lawyer's request, Larry refused to provide John Doblowski's with his new address, although his lover's son uh, discovered where Eiler lived. Um, at approximately 10.30 p.m. on October on August 19, 1984, Larry would get back to work doing what he does and lure a 16-year-old named Daniel Bridges to his apartment. Bridges had, had been a ma- uh, male sex worker since the age of 12. Um, and had been a close friend of the of victim Irvin Gibson and was uh, said to have been very weary, weary of Eiler. Nonetheless, Eiler was able to lure him back to his apartment. Mm. Two months before his murder, Bridges described to an NBC reporter during a documentary film that was focusing on child exploitation in America that Eiler was a, quote, real freak and that was well known in the male sex workers, uh, by the sex workers of Upton, Uptown. So... He knew what Larry was, and somehow Larry was able to coerce him back to his apartment. Money, I don't know if it was money, alcohol, what it was, but he was able to get him back there. And once inside Eiler's apartment, he would be tied to a chair with a clothesline before he was beaten, tortured, and stabbed to death. My God. That is dark. That is so dark. Like, the fact that he had done that interview, you know, yeah. and talked about what a freak he was, and then he ends up being killed by the man he was talking about. He should have went with his gut, Larry man. then, for real. No, no amount of money is worth being tortured and killed over yeah. potentially. You know, like the that is a big no risk. Doubt. No doubt, it just shows the situation though that that these young and Larry sex had nothing to lose at this point. He was going on trial for murder, you know, right? Soon enough, and he's walking the streets now to do what he loves to do. So, and he's got a time frame that he needs to get it done right. in. He's got even more urgency to his killing oh, now. Absolutely, terrific. Um, So Larry would then dismember Bridges' body in his bathroom. His body was cut into eight pieces and completely drained of blood from each piece before being placed in six separate bags, plastic bags. The dismembered body uh, would be found by a janitor uh, named Joseph Bala on the morning of August 21st, 1984. Yeah, apparently one of the bags... So this was two days later. One of the bags... Two days later, he would be discovered. Right? And like a leg came out? Yeah, his... Yeah, his remains have been placed in a garbage dumpster near Eiler's apartment and inside a unit not intended for usage by tenants within Eiler's apartment complex. Believing the bags to have been illegally dumped, Bala chose to remove the bags from the garbage receptacle inside to inspect the wow. contents. Can you imagine how much those must have What a dedicated oh janitor. God. I'd have been like, well, all's well, it is well. It's in there now, bro. Good job. You know? Yeah. To, and they must have just reeked so bad, must though. Must have really needed the dumpster space, too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know. Removing the first bag, removing the first bag from the disposable unit caused the bag to split open and reveal the contents to be a human severed leg. Uh, he reported the discovery to police and um, said all other janitors had seen a tenant named Larry Eiler place the bags in the dumpster the previous afternoon. My God! Oh, oh, oh. You imagine this realization? The police that like, just let him botched, go. 
his interrogation and stuff and like got his bail reduced essentially. And there, you know, there's little screw ups or the reason he's free to do this. Like they're directly responsible. Yeah. I know they didn't mean to do those fuck ups, but man, like you really got to follow the laws constraints, you know, when you're doing these investigations or else this kind of thing can happen. Those mistakes really hit you hard when you see a victim right in front of you the very next day. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's brutal. Um, recognizing Eiler's name, a police captain named Francis Nolan told the four other uh, officers present, quote, detain anyone living in apartment, apartment 106. I don't care who it is. <laughs> Within minutes, Larry Eiler was arrested. His lover, John Dobrovsky's, was also taken into custody. He was soon released without being charged. And a forensic examination of Eiler's apartment on August 21st and 22nd revealed ample amounts of blood uh, had recently been cleaned from his bedroom, which had been obviously uh, repainted through extensive traces of blood spattering were located across the floor, walls, and ceiling. So this was just a, an absolute bloodbath in this apartment. Numerous traces of blood later determined to be to belong to Daniel Bridges were also discovered on a mattress, the seat of a chair, a leather belt, uh, a sofa within his room, and beneath the floorboards of the doorway to the bathroom. Wow. Jesus. See, so, he tried to clean the floor oh. in the bathroom. Yeah. And in the doorway, but I guess some seeped into those floorboards. Wow. In, and inside Eiler's closet, investigators found Bridges' jeans soaked with blood, Bridges' distinctive Duke University t-shirt, also extensively blood-stained, was found in a hamper, and a leather vest belonging to Eiler had been recently washed. Wow. Investigators found a hacksaw with extra blades and all, which is like a, a sharp screwdriver, um, also found in a drawer in the utility room. Receipts recovered from the property revealed that Eiler had recently purchased several hacksaw blades. Mm. I feel like he should also be forbade from going to hardware um, stores, like home improvement yeah. stores, or or having know. knives, or metal-tipped mm-hmm. whips, or swords, mm. or handcuffs. You know, I think these are just some some obvious things. I think we could throw this in the probation. Or he just be, should be locked away in a prison cell forever, maybe. Oh yeah. Regardless of how the police obtained <laughs> the fucking tires or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like this judge should like cons- have considered how dangerous this man was. Maybe reduce his bond from a million to five hundred k because you know the police really screwed right. up. But ten thousand, damn. Yeah, that's just you know you he's walking out that back. day if you release it that low. You gave him his freedom yeah. back. Mm-hmm. Because of a couple little slip ups by the police. Right. Unbelievable. So on August 24th, investigators conducted a luminol test inside Eiler's now empty apartment, and the test revealed extensive traces of blood in the bedroom. Further markings across the floors indicated Bridges' body had been dragged from the bedroom to the bathtub, where it had been evidently uh, dismembered. So on August 22nd, Eiler was officially charged with Bridges' murder. He denied any knowledge of the crime, insisting his fingerprints must have been inadvertently placed upon the bags containing Bridges' oh. body where he had moved them aside. Well, let's ex- let's talk about the fact that his bloody clothes are in your fucking yeah, closet. Yeah, about that? There's blood literally like just your entire apartment is just caked in and blood. And it's his. And it's his blood. Like, come on, man. Like, there's the jig's up. Like, it's no, over. No, no, no. I was just, my fingerprints got there. I was just moving those bags. I I, know, I needed to put my bags in a certain place in the dumpster, and those bags were there. Right. So I, I just jumped in there, you know, moved those and bags. And I found these bloody clothes in the area, yeah. and I decided to take them I home because maybe I could wash them. And, you yeah. Know. I mean, like, who's not a Duke basketball fan, right? You could wash this sweater up. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. The same day, Cook County Medical Examiner Dr. Robert Steen led the autopsy on Bridges' body. 
and the autopsy uh, determined the death was due to multiple stab wounds from a knife. So it also fit the profile of the serial killer, um, of which Larry Eiler had been predicted to right. be. No facial f- fractures were evident, although the teenager had evidently been beaten around the eye and had numerous shallow cuts in his face before his death. Fifteen wounds likely inflicted with, inflicted with an ice pick or all were also found around Bridges' sternum. These wounds had been inflicted prior to death. Knife wounds to the stomach were markedly deep and caused by sections of bridge, caused sections of Bridges' intestine to protrude through the wounds. Which we'd seen on other victims already. Yeah. So with this one, in order to legally seek the death penalty, the prosecutors at Eiler's upcoming trial uh, opted to charge Eiler with the felonies of aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and concealment of Bridges' body in addition to the charge of murder. Eiler would be brought to trial for the aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, murder, and concealment of the body of Daniel Bridges on July 1st, 1986. Um, And he would be tried in Cook County, Illinois before Judge Joseph Urso, and chose to enter a formal plea of not guilty to the charges against him. Wow. As he was not able to pay for a defense attorney this time, he was defended by two public defenders named Claire Hilliard and Tom Allen, with David Shippers also informing Judge Urso of his intention to offer legal services pro bono. Eiler's attorneys in- instructed their client to not not to testify on his own behalf. This, this is interesting that, you know, he's done yeah, now. Yeah, they're like, shut this up, is, please. Just just shut up. <laughs> yeah, and, and I don't think his family or friends are, like, willing to step in and, and pay for attorneys anymore at this point. Right. He's now dumped the body in his own fucking apartment complex. That's the difference. Like, he was doing it, you know, in an intelligent way if you're trying not to get caught, going across state lines, dumping them off the highway to not be found for months on right. end. Now he literally kills a dude in his own apartment, leaves a bloody mess everywhere, tries to clean it, and then puts the body in a dumpster like on the on the same right. property it, it's almost like he wanted to get caught at this point it, or he just didn't care because he knew he was, was going to trial to say, for the other murders yeah. and likely to get found guilty he didn't care he's just like i'm gonna get i mean yeah. get me a couple more before i go yeah so on july 4th a janitor named al Burdicky testified that he had seen eiler make eight to 12 trips to his community storage locker on august 20th with eiler stating to him he was getting tools for a job Several hours later, he also witnessed Eiler making three separate trips to the garbage bins. On July 7th, uh, Dobrovowski's testified on behalf of the prosecution, stating he had called Eiler on three occasions between 8.45 and 11.25 on the day of Bridges' disappearance, yeah. and again at 2.45 a.m. on August 20th, only to be told not to visit his apartment as Eiler was still in the company of Robert Little. Ah. You know, it's not that we need any more evidence or we need to believe these witnesses, but it's funny that he said he made three separate trips to the garbage bins and the the body was placed into six garbage bags. So it'd be like one in each hand three times. So one for each it's, hand, it, yeah. It just makes so much sense. Everything just adds up so mm-hmm. perfect. Like you say, circumstantial yep. evidence is circumstantial evidence, but when you have mounds and mounds and mounds of it, it's like, when does it yep. become hard evidence? So the prosecution and defense attorneys gave their closing arguments in front of the jury on July 9th, and the jury deliberated for three hours before returning their verdict, and Eiler was found guilty of aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and murder of Daniel Bridges, in addition to the concealment of the teenager's body. His face displayed little emotion as the verdict was announced, although his hands clenched to the legs uh, on the attorneys of of each side of him. On September 30th, the prosecution and defense attorneys outlined their arguments regarding the sentence to be imposed on Eiler before Judge Urso. Um, and uh, Prosecutor Richard Stock introduced four people who tes- each testified that they had been assaulted 
and in one case left for dead by Eiler between 1978 and 1981, outlining the similarities in Eiler's restraining or immobilizing these individuals to restrain and torture bridges had endured before he was finally put out of his misery. Stock added, quote, there's nothing, your honor, that can ease the tears and agony that Larry Eiler has caused in this in his entire life. 33 years, and he has caused more tears than anyone. Mm. A sentence other than death will not, will be given, uh, will be given him his freedom. Yeah. So they're really pushing hard for the death penalty to be given to this man. Absolutely. For obvious reasons. If anybody reasons. deserved it, though. I mean, golly. Oh, my gosh. No doubt about it. So on October 1st, David Shippers introduced four character witnesses, Eiler's mother, stepfather, sister, and Catholic chaplain. So his defense now is going to bring in some people to say that he's a nice, swell young man. Um, They testified to the kindness and decency they had observed in Eiler's character. Yeah, you're seeing his daytime persona. Yeah, exactly. You're seeing the person. You're his mother. He's not going to tell you his fucking dark secrets that he likes to stab men in the stomach 50 times. Exactly. Ejaculate into it. like. Yeah, that probably doesn't come up at dinner. Yeah. No, exactly. It's not a, like a really Thanksgiving discussion. Right. No. Um, Eiler's mother, mother Shirley, re- referencing her son's emotionally difficult childhood and her frequently frequently marrying and divorcing a series of abusive husbands as she always sought stability for her children. Both Eiler's mother and sister cried as they pleaded with Judge Urso to spare Eiler's life. Shippers outlined his belief the death penalty should be inappropriate by stating the evidence presented before the jury claiming his client had committed murder based was based upon circumstantial evidence. Mm. Quite a bit of it, though. Yeah, it's a lot like, of There's it. no doubt. They already convicted him of the murder. They know he yeah. did it. Like, that, that's irrelevant at this point. The fact that the circumstantial evidence, uh, does, I mean, it's irrelevant because they found him guilty. I, I, I'm just like, if you're convinced he did it, and we know he's he, the way he did it was so so brutal and he's likely also murdered countless other right. men i'm sure they the jury's not able to avoid that fact either absolutely know? not i mean how many bodies were still left out there you know undiscovered yeah so after hearing the closing arguments judge or so announced he would return his decision at 10 a.m on october 3rd on the state he find, he formally sentenced Eiler to death by lethal injection emphasizing his decision had been difficult for him to reach due to his religious beliefs he explained, quote, the senseless and barbaric murder of 16, a 16-year-old boy, a killing which was so brutal it defies description, shows me your complete disregard of human life. If there was ever a person or situation for which the death penalty is appropriate, it is you. You are an evil person. You, you truly deserve to die for your acts. I thereby sentence you to death for the murder of Dan, Danny Bridges committed during the course of his aggravated kidnapping. Wow. Well said, well Judge. Well said. That sums it up. I mean, you could say that yeah. and then implement many, many other names in Danny Bridges' slot right there, um, unfortunately. Yep. But at least they had enough evidence for this one to put him put him behind bars. Yep. And now the task force can get to work knowing that he they don't have to worry about him running around killing anybody else. They can get to work tying him, uh, you know, all the evidence to all those other murders and, and connecting them to his, his name. Exactly. And giving these families um, closure. And getting closure for those yeah. families. Yeah. So following his sentencing, Eiler was taken to the Pontiac Correction Center, Correctional Center, where he remained incarcerated on death row. Within the facility, Eiler went, underwent several psychiatric evaluations. These tests concluded he suffered from a severe borderline personality disorder, noting Eiler's pathological sensitivity to feelings of abandonment. Exer- experts theorized that he had killed in response to real per- or perceived feelings of rejection from his lover discharging his rage upon his victims. Furthermore, these experts believed he also had murdered in order to maintain a sense of control. 
In November of 1990, a Vermilion County prosecutor named Larry Thomas obtained the evidence against Eiler in relation to the murder of Ralph Calise. He hoped to present the evidence to a grand jury in Indiana to determine in, if sufficient evidence existed to charge Eiler with the December 1982 uh, murder of Stephen Agin. Upon learning of his impending indictment of, in Agin's murder, Eiler agreed to confess to his culpability. So he's finally going to come clean because he has something to gain from it now. He thinks maybe if he confesses to all these murders, he can get off of death uh-huh. row and get a maybe life sentence. Maybe make a deal at this and, point, right? Yeah, it's time to make a deal because you're, you're, you either make a deal or you're going to get that shot in the arm right. and it's over. Right, which is too good for you, um, but yeah. Yeah. So he's willing to start uh, admitting his fault in some of these crimes, but he insisted that Robert Little helped him commit the murder of Stephen Agin. He agreed to confess to his guilt and testify against his alleged accomplice on the condition that he be given a fixed term of imprisonment instead of de- a death sentence, and his offer would be accepted. I think that this was the best thing that the task force and the police investigating all these different homicides could ask for was him getting given uh, getting the death penalty because now they had that to hold over him to get more info oh, from yeah. him to get confessions for the other crimes. Yep. They had something they could offer, which was life rather than death exactly. to him. Exactly. That motivated him. That changes your perspective mm-hmm. quite a bit. Yep. The beauty is he would he would uh die of AIDS instead and it didn't matter. But <laughs> We'll get to yeah. that. So his offer was accepted, and Eiler provided his attorney with a 17-page confession on December 4th. On December 13th, he pled guilty to the murder of Stephen Agin before Judge Don, Don Darnell. He also testified that Robert Little was a knowing and willing participant in the murder. And an independent polygraph test done to Little's trial indicated that uh, the authenticity of this assertion and added Eiler's further claim that Little had been an individual who had actually murdered Daniel Bridges. So he even uh, passes a polygraph test saying that um, that uh, Larry was in on this as yeah, well. That Robert or, uh, Little. Uh, Robert Little, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so Larry Eiler's uh, sentence would be changed to 60 years imprisonment, and he would be removed from death row. Um, and uh, Little, age 53, was arrested on December 18th due to Larry's claim that he had um, been his accomplice in these murders. Right. And he was formally charged with Stephen Agin's first degree murder, facing a sentence of 60 years if convicted. And he would be brought to trial uh, on April 11th, 1991. He would be tried before judge John Darnell and entered a f- plea of uh, not guilty. Um, and Larry Eiler would testify against him, uh, claiming that he and little had both committed the murder of Stephen Agin on December 19th, 1982. According to Eiler, the two had regularly socialized in, within Indianapolis's gay community and would occasionally bring young men back to Little's home to engage in sex, mm-hmm. which we know pretty sure that this is all yeah, true. Why does he have to here. lie about this um, at this point? I mean, you know how ashamed right. he is of this lifestyle. Why would right. he bring it up? Um, he said that Little would then often photograph the sexual acts. Testimony from Eiler stated that on the date of the murder, Little had suggested the two, quote, do a scene which he underst- had understood uh, to mean that commit a murder for sexual pleasure as Little photographed the event with a Polaroid camera. Um, he and Little lured again Agin into Little's vehicle in Terre Haute. Um, Eiler had vaguely known Agin from visiting a car wash where Agin worked. Although Agin was a heterosexual, he agreed to participate in a bondage and photography session for money. This is something I mentioned earlier. A lot of the, I think, you know, at least a handful of uh, Larry Eiler's victims were straight men who right, just needed right. money. You uh, know, 
the two men. I was going to say. Go ahead. Uh, real quick, learning now about Little's involvement in this. I didn't want to give this away too early, but I mean that was obviously motivation for him to get Isler out too. You know, we talked about how <clears throat> we were joking about how like oh he needed more guys now or whatever. But he knew that if Isler went down, it was only a matter of time. Like what does what does Larry Isler have to gain from staying quiet? If anything, he has to gain right. from giving information. And Little's not stupid. He's a, he's a, he's a college professor. He's, he's a smart man. He knows mm-hmm. that Eiler's conviction mm-hmm. puts him in troubled waters. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so now... Yeah, so him continually getting exactly, Larry out. It, it constantly taking, taking yep. the heat off of himself as well. It's just, it's just you know, nipping yep. that in the bud before they come looking for me. You know, yep. that, I think that was his true motivation. Yeah. So Larry testifying against his his uh, partner, um, his former partner, uh, said that they had picked up Agen and uh, that they drove Agen to a, a location close to the airport where a guardsman ordered the three off the airport grounds. Eiler then drove to an abandoned shed close to Indiana State Road 63. At this point, Agen's hands were tied above a beam where he was gagged and bound. According to Eiler, Little then screamed, get out the knife, before he had started to stab Agen. Eiler further testified that Little had repeatedly masturbated while photographing him as he bound and repeatedly stabbed Agen, and that Little had also stabbed the young man before informing him, quote, okay, kill the motherfucker. Little had then had taken Agen's undershirt from the crime scene and had later complained to Eiler the overall murder had been over way too fast. So kind of Whoa. interesting the amount, amount of detail that yeah. he pulled in here, like the like the, the like the kind of the detail, airport thing, the kind of detail. like oh we went to the airport first right. and then the security guard kicked us off. Like that kind of stuff is is weird. It almost gives it more true. clout. It gives it more in truth. a way, but I don't know if that's calculated. Yeah, I don't know if that's cal- if it's calculated because he has plenty, plenty of time sitting around in prison. You know, he's been on death row pretty much for a while. And like he's, he had time to think up this whole story. And maybe this story went down this. Maybe he picked up Agen without Little and this exact situation happened. And just Little wasn't there. And now he just added him in. Nah. I don't know. You think you, you're convinced that Little was, was involved in some of these? Yeah. Obviously. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, if it's the profile, um, it, it's just like, what does he have to gain from helping him out, giving him all this money? He had to have known. He The, the way that Larry Eiler, the rate at which he was killing, there was no way he could have hidden this from, what about, from a guy he was living what with. What about all the... Like, he had to have at least known that Larry was killing young men. Right. Like, at the very least, he knew. Oh, God, yes. What about all the phone calls after the murders? Why are you calling him exactly. randomly after exactly. all the murders? Probably telling him to get a camera. Yeah. Bring the camera. He had to have come back you know, covered like in that. blood a lot of times and, like... Having like pieces of evidence from the victims, Little is all just that as shit. guilty, like, bro. Just, in a lot of these, I yeah. mean, that's my opinion. You know what I'm saying? But so at his trial, upon cross examination, one of Little's defense attorneys, Dennis Zahn, asserted that as Little had appeared as a witness for the prosecution at Eiler's uh, earlier trial for the murder of Daniel Bridges, Eiler was simply implicating Little in a further murder that had committed uh, had committed as form of a form of revenge. So he was getting back for. You know his former partner testifying against him mm-hmm. in his trial. So this is his way of getting back, is what they're saying. In support of this argument, Zahn questioned Eiler in regards to 15 other alleged victims of his. On each occasion, Eiler exercised his Fifth Amendment right and suggested that Little's attorney should ask their client about the homicides. However, when questioned if he had dismembered the body of Daniel Bridges, Eiler admitted that he had committed this act, but he denied the responsibility of the teenager's, teenager's actual murder. Both the prosecution and defense delivered their closing arguments before the jury, and Dennis Zahn described his client as an individual victimized because of his sexuality and portrayed Eiler as a convicted murderer, 
cynically uh, fabricating accusations against his client as a last-ditch effort to give his death sentence, uh, get his death sentence commuted. Hmm. Valid argument. Valid argument. Valid no argument. Doubt. I mean, I mean, that's what I would. That's Larry the card definitely I would had play some, too. Uh, something huge to gain. Yeah, he definitely yeah. had something huge to gain from this. Yeah. Referencing the 24 times that Eiler had exercised his Fifth Amendment rights in response to questioning by the defense, Zahn ended his closing argument by asking the jurors, "Quote: Would you convict an honorable man on this on the word of Larry Eiler?" Oh, that's a pretty strong closing argument. <laughs> Yeah, I mean... Uh, and it was strong enough that it actually got acquittal. After deliberating for over seven hours, the jury found Little not guilty of all charges on April 17th, and Little grinned as the verdict was read before hugging his attorney as Stephen Egan's brother and parents ran out of the courtroom. Following his acquittal, Little had held a press conference in which he told reporters, quote, I'm just so happy this ordeal is over. <laughs> I bet. Before stating his intentions to return to his teaching position at the Indiana State University. Wow. Oh, dude. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I watched some interviews with him on YouTube. There's there's some great like news interviews, and just mm-hmm. it, it's, it's too many things add up, man. The way he answers the questions, the way he's like, no comment, no comment on that. No, well, 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 just we're not asking you to, you know, employ that you're guilty. We're just asking you for for your explanation. No comment on that. You know, right. If you were innocent, you would have a, a like like what a, is it? A totally understandable explanation for where you were right. or what you were doing at this time. And when the heat started coming on him, this was before the trial. When the heat was coming on him, he was like laying out of work. Like he was he was mm-hmm. missing all kinds of work and stuff and canceling classes. Why was he doing all this? He's getting rid of evidence. Once again, to, to, it's just completely unbelievable to say that he he didn't know Larry Eiley. He was living with the guy during this unbelievable killing spree of, you know, in the 20s of young men, maybe more. Yes, man. You know, he's, yeah. There's no way he didn't at, least, at the very least know what was going on and have have plenty of time and ability to stop it from happening, and he didn't. He never did, so. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, Larry Eiler, you know, he got off death row, but... Uh, you know he couldn't he couldn't escape the grim reaper anyway and uh he's now if there is a hell he's sitting firmly there uh, because Larry Adler would die in the infirmary in the Pontiac Correctional Center on March 6 1994 he died from AIDS related complications and he had been seriously ill for approximately 10 days prior to his death and all we can hope is that it was torturously painful I hope yeah, yeah. I hope so man the way he tortured after all, all that he men. put all those young men through yeah um, two days after he died, Catherine Zellner called a press conference in which she revealed the names and or descriptions of 17 individuals that Eiler confessed to having personally murdered. He named four other individuals, Stephen Crockett, Stephen Agin, and an unidentified Caucasian murdered in late May 1983, an unidentified Caucasian male murdered April of 1984, that Eiler claimed to have been murdered with the assistance of Robert Little, who Zellner referred to in this press conference as an unnamed individual still living in, in Indiana. Uh, Zellner emphasized her client's insistence that Little had been the individual who had actually murdered Daniel Bridges. So at this point, it's almost like he has nothing to to gain from saying this. He's still claiming that Little, I mean, he's, Little got off. He's not going to get tried again for these crimes. Right. And yet Larry is still insistent that he played a role in these. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to Zellner, Eiler had uh, been emotionally insecure and he viewed Robert Little as somewhat of a father figure that he had never had in his life. And this had left Eiler vulnerable to manipulation. I'm not going to buy that. Hmm. There could be a little something to that there, though. There could be a little something there that that he did see him as a father figure. And finally, he has a mm-hmm. father figure that accepts him for who he is at his root. Mm-hmm. You know? And maybe... 
I don't know. I mean, you're 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 saying that that you don't think that little was any type of mastermind in any of these. Like, I don't think, don't think my, my, what I'm saying stuff, is, I least. think Larry, I think Larry was out killing young men, and whether uh, little had a role in some of them or not is irrelevant. Like, but like to sit here and act like little is the reason that he did all of these crimes, which is oh, what no, it sounds no, no. like Zillner's saying he was saying. No, I, I don't think that's the case. I just think that it, it definitely influenced him. You know, it was kind of a Vernon Butts, William Bonin thing where mm-hmm. they kind of, they, they lifted up each other and encouraged each other in this horrible lifestyle. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They kind of, sometimes this one took the lead, yeah, sometimes he took the lead. Sometimes it was like, hey, want to go kill somebody tonight? Not really, but I guess I will. You know, maybe. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like Little just played a much bigger role because you just don't get that financially invested in someone if you don't have more yeah. at stake. That's what that's the thing. It's it's the money too. You know what I'm saying? It's not just the relationship and they live together, but the money he invested in Larry. Right. I don't know. You just don't. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, does it? No, it does not. You could find another dude to to, to be your wingman. Exactly. For some money, you know what it's I mean? For money, yeah. Or you can just pay men yeah. for money. A lot less up. than twenty k, which he paid over twenty k to get him out twice. Right. Yeah. yeah, it just don't add up, man. He had more yeah. at stake. So emphasizing her belief in Eiler's confession, Zellner elaborated that her client had been formally diagnosed with AIDS in March of 1991 and therefore knew when he testified at Little's trial in the Stephen Agin murder that he was dying and most likely would have died prior to his execution anyway. Uh, she says, I believe Larry was truthful. Larry had no incentive to lie any- to anyone. In his posthumous, uh, posthumous confession, Eiler stated that he typically lured his victims who had been heterosexual and homosexual with the promise of drugs, alcohol, money, or transport, and that immediately prior to stabbing several of his victims, he had pressed the blade of his knife against their abdomen before informing to his victim, quote, make peace with God. Furthermore, Eiler claimed that he had never had sex with any of his victims, and he frequently gave, uh, given his victims t-shirts to Robert Little to use in masturbatorial fantasies. This, I believe. So I'm saying... Larry, like Robert Little definitely knew what, oh, what yeah. Larry was doing. He knew he was a serial killer and I think he got off on it. And I, I believe that that t-shirt thing is a weird thing to make up. Yeah. Isn't it? Maybe Robert kept the clothes. Remember uh, with Daniel yeah. Bridges clothes in the closet? Maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. Robert Little kept those. Yeah. Yeah. Because look, otherwise, why would, because, why would he have kept those? Yeah. That's damning evidence. Yeah. Because look, Eiler doesn't even want to look at the person or the body. He wants to cover it up yes. and leave and move on. Right. So why was he keeping keepsakes? And we know the wallet and shirts were always gone, right? That was part of like the calling card. Yeah. And man, that makes too much sense, right? Yeah, it does. Because like you can almost picture him bringing the shirt and the wallet back to Robert Little. Yeah. I mean, like this is the kid that I just killed. Here's his ID. This is what he looked like, and here's the shirt. Yep. Complete with have fun blood stains. Oh my god, everything it's dark. Else. Yeah, it's dark, it dark. but it, it makes a lot of sense. And like you said, what does he have to gain from making it up at this point? And it's such a mm-hmm. weird thing to make up. Like, I know you got time in your jail cell, but what the fuck, man? That's a yep. weird thing to make up. Zellner stated that Eiler had begun compiling a list of his victims shortly after she had been appointed his le- as his legal representative in November of 1990 in an effort to obtain a plea bargain, whereas his sentence would be commuted to, li- to one of life imprisonment. With his sentence declining... Or with his health declining, Eiler had authorized his attorney to publicly release his confession after his death, with his explanation being that the families of his victims would know he had confessed to the murders of their sons and brothers. Eiler's posthumous confession revealed he had murdered 21 teenage boys and young men between 1982 and 1984, being assisted by his alleged accomplice Robert Little in four of these murders. 
Investigators strongly believe that Eiler is also responsible for two other murders committed in Wisconsin and Kentucky in 1983. uh, Eiler's alleged victims, police determined, had been strewn over a pyramid-shaped area stretching from northern Illinois to central Indiana and Illinois. In his formal confession, he claimed to have committed these murders as part of means of relieving frustration and his feeling, uh, uh, he felt a sense of relief afterwards. His victims were hitchhikers, male sex workers, or individuals he had gen- generally met by happenstance. So anyone that he could get into his truck and offer something to, that didn't, didn't necessarily mean they were a sex worker or that they were gay or right. um, anything like that. It was just anybody he could get alone and offer something to um, that he had, I guess, a base level of attraction to or that he thought maybe Robert Little would have attraction to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Uh, of the 24 victims that Eiler posthumously uh, confessed to killing, 10 had been committed in Indiana, 10 in Illinois. Furthermore, according to Eiler, the body of one of these victims, an uptown male prost- uh, sex worker known as Cowboy, killed in his Rogers Park apartment in 1984, had never been found. And we'll quickly run through the list of the victims one more time just to give it some more, you know, some more levity because. This is just, these are all human lives that were taken. Right. So Stephen Crockett, 19, Edgar Underclofer, 26, John Johnson, 25, Stephen Agin, 23, John Roach, 21, David Block, 22, Irvin Gibson, 16, John Bartlett, 19, Michael Bauer, 22, Richard Wayne, 17, Jay Reynolds, 29, Gustavo Herrera, 28, Jimmy Roberts, 18, Daniel McNeve, 21, Richard Bruce, 25, John Brandenburg Jr., 19, which was known as a John Doe for a long time and was later identified. Um, Ralph Calise, 28, Eric Hansen, 18, Daniel Bridges, 16. And although he did not confess to the murders of Jay Reynolds and Eric Hansen, he is considered a strong suspect in both homicides. And that is just an unbelievable amount of life to, uh, you know, to take and pain and suffering on family members yeah. and friends of all of those young men That's whose right. lives were taken. Like we said before, the way it spider webs out is just inconceivable. You don't know yep. how much, how much pain this man has caused. Yep. Wow. That does it, man. Yet another freeway killer to add to the series. And we could say it's over, but most likely we'd be lying on that. Yeah. Cause I'm sure we'll find another freeway. No, killer I know, at some right. Point. <laughs> I mean, it was just uh, the strategy, man. And then the time period, you know what I mean? Cro- like we said yep. throughout this episode, crossing the jurisdictions, putting miles on the truck, spreading them out. It just made it so mm-hmm. difficult. I mean, it's just no internet, no the databases weren't that good, you know, DNA testing wasn't there yet. Man, yep. it's just a, it was a clusterfuck, man. Victims that weren't necessarily reported missing right away. Right, yeah. Yep, yeah, a lot of it has to do with the victim pool. Like we've noticed... You know, throughout all of these cases, it's the victim pool has the biggest, the biggest uh, effect on whether or not they're caught and how quickly they're caught. Yep. And uh, we'll see you guys for just the banter on Friday. Yep. Keep creeping. Keep creeping, guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder, get murder, get murder. True crime, true crime, crime. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder charming. Oh, 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 oh,
the minds of true crime guys. Come. TCG Weekly. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to check out all the other programs on the TCG Network. Every Wednesday, a new episode of True Crime Guys proper, Strange and Unexplained on Mondays, and Full House Fantasy Football on Fridays to start your weekend. If those aren't enough, head on over to our Patreon account, where you can have access to hundreds of hours of content, including older episodes and other Patreon exclusives like Strange Shorts, Sandu Stories, Higher Thoughts, and the 5-Minute Murder Show. But until next time, guys, keep creeping. How do you you shut this thing off? Over? Get my show out, boy.